You're now listening to the sound of two genial men, soon to be joined by a third, to talk about 12 Angry Men. Let's talk about them. Well, let's introduce our genial men first. Mm. You've got Nathan Aaron Alberson, the king of podcasting. Right. That's what they call me, the king of podcasting. And I'm joined by my good friend. He's the pastor. No, he's the preacher who's a teacher of movies in this case. He's Benjamin J. Solzer. Here I am. And we are at the behest of one of our favorite patrons. We are going to talk about a film called 12 Angry Men. Absolutely. The 1957 American courtroom drama directed by Sidney Lumet, I think is how we decided to pronounce his name, correct? Yeah, I think we did. I think I thought it was Lumet. Lumet. Sidney Lumet. I'm wrong. No, yeah, well, you're wrong. Often happens that I'm wrong. You're wrong. Did you have a reasonable doubt that it was... No, I did not. Well, but I was wrong. That was your problem. I was shown. You you played the Henry Fonda to my broker or something. Supposing you're wrong. I like how they use the word supposing in this film. <laughs> supposing you're not wrong. Well, Ben, there's all kinds of things to talk about in this movie, and it's going to be a lot of fun. And Jake, I think, will be joining us, but he had a softball game that went late last night. So he's running a little behind, but our schedule just can't wait for him. But folks... You're going to hear all Jake's thoughts on 12 Angry Men. Awesome. All 12 of them. What do you want to bet Jake has 12 thoughts on 12 Angry Men? I'd like to bet that he does. Okay. I'll take that bet. All right. I bet you $1,000 Jake has less or more than 12 thoughts on 12 uh, Angry Men. No, uh, nah, you know what? I don't think I'm going to do that. Supposing he does. I just, yeah. I don't know. Supposing he does. Then what? You'll win $1,000. Yeah. You know what? I don't want to make that bet. What if he does have 12? (laughs) (laughs) Pretty awesome. Ben, can I tell you a few things about 12 Angry Men? Yeah. All right. So this movie is really interesting. Are you familiar with the golden age of television? No, not really. The first age of television before I Love Lucy? Mm Mm-mm. So I suspect maybe a lot of our listeners don't know about this as well. But there was a time early in television's history when television was primarily considered a high culture medium and this Hmm. time was in the 40s mid 40s through like 59 would have been the last gasp of any of the kinds of programming that i'm talking about what happened was Hmm. they invented this invention called television and it hit big metro areas first and places with a little bit more urbane culture And it didn't get to the Hicks in Indiana, like us, until kind of the 50s. And so, in the late 40s and the early 50s, they really were pushing to make it a cultured medium. And they also were already then having those arguments about like, well, you could just read a book. Why would you want to watch television? You know, this debate was already starting to swirl. And so... The people that ran television out of L.A., out of New York, began developing high culture television. And that's really what it was Hmm. thought of through the early 50s, at least. And then it sort of swapped out with low culture television during the 50s. And then by around 1960, 
Hmm. It was sitcoms and westerns. But they didn't start by making sitcoms and westerns. They started by doing a lot of live performances of theater, of plays, of debates. I mean, this is what everybody just assumed television was going to be. And it attracted witty, smart people. What's his name? The guy, that really perverse guy. He debated with William F. Buckley. Oh. uh, Gore Vidal wrote for television. uh, Patty Chayowski, who famously wrote Network and other Sidney LeMay film and a lot of good movies, wrote for television. The guy that wrote 12 Angry Men wrote for television. And he actually wrote it for television. This was originally written as a teleplay that was just performed for television theater. And Hmm. it would have been this good. Like, they didn't have to smarten it up or change it or rewrite it for the movie version. This was, this was just written as a TV play back in a weird, lost, forgotten era when TV plays were this popular high art kind of thing. Hmm. And so you had these different shows like the craft theater and the this huh. theater and the that theater. I mean, you can also imagine if you know what radio was doing at the time. Radio had a lot of stuff like this, where they would adapt books, where they would adapt plays. There's H.G. Wells' famous adaptation of War of the Worlds. Radio had comedy and Mm. had low art type stuff, which would eventually filter into TV as well. But radio also had a lot of high culture stuff. And Mm. TV originally had a lot of high culture stuff. So relics that you might be familiar with from that era are things like Mary Martin's famous version of Peter Pan, which was a big Broadway smash, and it has all those songs like, I won't grow up, I won't grow up, I don't want to be. And it was filmed in front of a live studio audience. And so you had composers, um, your Leonard Bernstein, like the kind of mid-century people doing things on television. It was all kind of a high culture medium. And then I Love Lucy comes along. When was that? And I Love Lucy is early to mid-50s. Let me check the date. (laughs) I didn't think you were going to ask. Yeah, okay. So, uh, (laughs) I Love Lucy. I'm just reading off of Wikipedia. It's an American television sitcom Mm -hmm. that originally aired on CBS from October 15, 1951 to 1957. So, the original live TV version of 12 Angry Men is 1954. It's actually all on YouTube. I'm just looking at it now. Yeah, no, that doesn't surprise me because like I said, this kind of intersection of high culture TV and low culture TV goes through the 50s. But but what happens is I Love Lucy hits in 51 and then huh. slowly but surely advertisers and people that are in positions to make money off of TV realize, oh, everybody would much rather watch Lucy than some kind of highbrow play like 12 Angry Men. Like, mm-hmm. we're, we're going to make a lot more money if we transform this into a low culture medium. Huh. And there's a lot of interesting history there. I Love Lucy is the first scripted television program to be shot mm-hmm. that way. It's also the Desi Lou, Lucy and Desi kind of pioneered the concept of reruns. Huh. And so advertisers the money men realize we can shoot things and then we'll have this legacy product that we can rerun and rerun and rerun and everybody would much rather watch that than new york is so much smarter than indiana as as Hmm. an indianan but it is true that tv was going rural and rural people have different Hmm. tastes than 
urban people and they might not be as interested in a progressive hmm. drama like 12 Angry Men or a concert performance or a rendition of the latest Broadway smash or, or, hmm. or whatever. They're, they, they would really just like to watch <laughs> old Lucy. She's up to it again. She sure does want to join show biz business with, with Ricky or whatever that guy's name is. <laughs> I don't know. I, was, I, I never really loved Lucy. Do you love Lucy, Ben? Uh, not really, Nathan. I've seen only a couple of episodes. If I'm going to watch something like that, I'd much rather watch the Dick Van Dyke show. <laughs> or now, there's any number of things that I love from that era. But I love Lucy. I, I always found just a little bit annoying. <laughs> but in any case, I love Lucy changed television and brought about basically low culture tv which is so funny because you watch a lot of those things now and they feel like high culture what you watch right. you watch the westerns from the 1950s which were everywhere just flooded the television market and you realize critics were bemoaning the west oh, we have to sit through another oats drama or whatever they called it another horse <laughs> drama another odor yeah and you watch them now and you're like wow this is art compared to CSI. CSI or Survivor. <laughs> like, wow, somebody actually put some thought into this dialogue and these camera angles. And this is, this is pretty smart. So it all feels high class now. But yeah, that's funny. But there was this weird battle between uh, high class and low class, low class one. But in the meantime, you got some things and a couple scripts that were written for television and premiered as live broadcasts of television plays became famous movies and the two biggest ones are 12 angry men and marty i don't know if you're familiar with the movie marty marty he's got ernest borgnine and he's kind of a sad sack huh, that no. falls in love pretty popular movie from the 50s those are those are two of the big ones huh. but yeah 12 angry men written by this guy named reginald rose who and it's what he's most famous for in 1954 as a teleplay and Henry Fonda gets a hold of it and says this would make a great movie, but nobody's really interested in giving the money. No studio is all really excited about a one-room courtroom mm -hmm. dra drama. So Fonda and this writer, Reginald Rose, team up, put up the money themselves, essentially make an independent film, huh. and get a dude named Sidney LeMay to direct. And this is Lumet. his... Lumet. Lumet. <laughs> now I'm calling him Lumet. <laughs> Lumet, Lumet, Lumet. That's that's what it. Yeah, that's what we yeah. decided. Yeah, Lumet. Uh, sorry, we <laughs> talked about this beforehand, we folks. Did. I don't know how much of it made now it on mic, but now we're confused. Yeah, they got Sidney Lumet, and Sidney Lumet was a guy that had directed a bunch of this stuff in TV, and it had huh. become an incredibly fast and proficient TV director. And there was no particular reason why he would break into movies, except for that Fonda. And this Reginald Rose writer guy needed a director for their thing. They were putting up the money themselves. They weren't going to be able to afford a big known director. So they mm -hmm. gave Lumet his break. And huh. Lumet became a really prolific, great director. One of the best directors that you probably haven't heard of if you're not a major 20th century movie buff. Mm -hmm. And the reason you haven't heard of him is because he was a chameleon. He would adapt himself. He would do different styles, different genres, different things. And he always put the project and the script first. So it's not like a Hitchcock or a Kubrick where their personal style and the stamp that they put on it is actually the thing that you're paying for mm -hmm. and the thing that you want, which I love that kind of stuff. But Lumet is not that kind of 
director. Yeah, who would we compare him to today? That's an interesting question. Who would we compare him to today? I mean, unfortunately, one comparison that comes to mind is a guy who does mostly violent action movies, which is Christopher McQuarrie. We've talked about Mm -hmm. him before. He is really more that. Like, Christopher McQuarrie is more of a chameleon. It's just, he's... He's a chameleon in the world of action movies. Yes. And he did uh, the last couple of Mission Impossibles, Jack Reacher. Yeah. And some stupid thing called The Way of a Gun. The Gun, And mm-hmm. yeah, he's just like, you haven't heard of him, but he's 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 become Tom Cruise's kind of right. go-to guy. And so actually, he's a little different because he basically exists to make Tom Cruise look good. Right. These days. But he latched himself to Tom Cruise because that was a good business decision. It's, it's not like... He sure. has this personal Macquarie stamp that he likes to put on things. He's happy to just serve the interests of Cruise's mm-hmm. brand. And if it had been not Cruise's brand, it would have been something else. Right. But um, who else? There's got to be someone else we could think of. Well, the problem oh, is... I, I, I do. I do. What's what's his name? Truman Show guy. Peter, yeah, Peter Weir. Peter Weir, yeah. P- Peter Weir is more of just a craftsman. Yeah. He also he did Truman Show. He did... Master and Commander. Master and Commander. He's, he's done a lot of stuff. What what else? What, uh, what, am I, what are the obvious ones? I'm not. He did Gallipoli. Yeah, he did seen uh, the uh, Pic- Picnic at Hanging Rock, a wonderful movie from 75 that probably has bad stuff, but is really creepy and interesting uh, about some girls that from a girl's school that go up on a mountain and just disappear and everybody has to wrap their heads around what happened. He did. Well, he did. One of my least favorite movies, but I don't know that it's his fault. It's just oh, a, that's... a schmaltzy screenplay, which is Dead Poets Society. Ugh, I hate that um, movie. But Weir really works his, what do we say on this podcast? His took us off to make that movie work. He's just got a bad, I want to say borderline evil screenplay to work with. But it's not his fault that that movie, I mean, it's his fault for choosing it, I guess. But yeah. he does he does what he can with that movie. I mean, that's a very well-made movie, mm-hmm. whatever else you want to say about it. Yeah, yeah. And maybe one day we'll have to do Dead Poets Society. Oh, no, I hope not. Well, the only reason to do it is because so many people still remember it fondly and really like it. And it kind of, hmm. every generation okay. rediscovers it. And it's like, I can stand Captain, on my desk my too. Yeah. <sighs> Carpe diem. Carpe DVD of... <laughs> uh, <laughs> Dead Poet Society and throw it in the trash. Carpe as in carp as in bottom feeder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you go. See how I did that. If, um, if you like that movie and you're wondering why we're uh, ragging on it here, it glorifies suicide. It completely stacks the deck between making all authority look stupid and all youthful rebellion look cool and yeah. does any number of other things that are... Yeah. That are just stupid. It, it really does. It's very emotionally manipulative. And it has nothing to say about literature or art. It cherry picks a few great quotes from the romantic poets and then kind of makes you think that maybe it's saying something, but it's a really cheap yeah. storyline. Anyway, and, 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 and not one of Robin Williams' best performances, I don't think. Just a bad movie all around. Yeah. Um, well, and the way that... That's an interesting movie to sh- to talk about because the suicide scene is Ugh. ostensibly a bad thing in the movie, but the way it's shot by Peter Weir, maybe this is his far- part, uh, his his fart, his fault. <laughs> it just feels so glorious and dramatic, and it's slow motion, and this kid is self actualizing through suicide, and the music is telling you how, and it's just like mm. how many people died because of Dead Poet Society, more than one. I'd say. Mm. 
I hear a sound like maybe Jake's about to join us, folks. You think? I think Jake might. What? Oh, there he is. Ah. There he is. All right. We were just talking about how crappy Dead Poet Society is, Jake. How did we get there? It's a terrible movie. Jake wants to plug in lights, so we're plugging in lights. We're plugging in lights, folks. Lights, camera, action. I think sitting in a basement with nothing but a fluorescent light overhead is depressing. It is depressing, but we were happy to be depressed because we were talking about Dead Poet Society. (laughs) And now you've spoiled the mood. Right. Uh, Jake has gotten in here just in time to save you from more dunking on dead poet society folks we'll get back to we're like beating up on steve urkel or something like that (laughs) well it's beating up on steve urkel if everybody at school thought he was the cool kid and put him in charge of all the clubs and made him the valedictorian i guess steve urkel probably was the valedictorian but i'm just saying he might have been if everybody liked steve urkel and you and the world needed to be told this guy's dumb he did do that but did that many people really like dead poet society Ah, maybe it's one of those movies that's actually got its comeuppance and society at large has turned against it and I'm just being lamestreamed by hating it. That's entirely possible and I might be behind the times, but I feel like I still talk to people who are like, oh yeah, that movie's cool. And those people need to be warned that Dead Poet Society is stupid. I just, I never watched it until recently, fairly recently, mostly because you dunk on it all the time. I don't remember it being a thing for anybody, so... But that, I mean, we ran in different circles or ran in different circles when that movie came out. I mean, it's a very attractive to a certain subset of nerds who see themselves as romantics and they're reading. Romantics and poets and. Our our favorite group that we always dunk on, the the Dostoevsky readers, the Ayn Rand readers, the the outcasts. And when they love to stand on their desk and protest rigid authority that blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Anyway, Jake, we were talking about that because we're talking about 12 Angry Men. And we're just a few minutes in. The, oh. only th- the only thing we've really said so far in terms of context is that it started as a teleplay for back when TV did prestige things like this. And then it was adapted into a movie and it was mm-hmm. adapted by a guy named Sidney Lamet as the director. And we were talking about him and we were trying to think of his modern corollary and Ben thought of Peter Weir. Pe- yeah. Who directed just a craftsman who directed Dead, chameleon. Dead Poets Society. And good movies. <laughs> yeah, and also a lot of good movies. Master and Commander being... I just watched that recently. And one of everybody's favorites. Does it hold up? Yeah, it holds up. It. I was surprised to hear by it. How, how well Master and Commander held up. Huh. It was the better well, of it, well, two it, evils. It was, <laughs> it, it was better on this... It was the second time I'd seen it. And the context of the first viewing <laughs> made me think it wasn't that great. <laughs> and this viewing, just sitting with my, my kids, my older boys... It's just like, yeah, this is this is really great. Mm-hmm. I remember loving it as a as a kid because it just draws you into that world of like, this is like being on a ship. I remember That's feeling really queasy about it as a kid because it drew, drew you into that <laughs> world of oh, this is like how terrible it would be to be on a ship. <laughs> That's that's Peter Weir for you though. He'll just do whatever work he needs to do. Well, I guess that brings us back to Sidney Lemay or Lamet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to pronounce his name correctly. So he did Twelve Angry Men. That was his big break. The other things that you may or may not know, which are com- just in different styles and genres because he was a real chameleon, Murder on the Orient Express, one of the most famous versions from the 70s, the one with Alfred, Al- Albert Finney, huh. uh, which is Never really, seen it. it's great. It's stacked with stars. It's got uh, Sean Connery and Ingrid Bergman and Sidney Lumet's big thing in that movie was let's just get stars. And so they did. 
Uh, Dog Day Afternoon, pretty famous crime caper, Serpico, a couple of those gritty 70s Pacino type things. Mm-hmm. Uh, Network, one of the best movies about media and all that sort of stuff that has ever been made. The guy's mad as hell. He's not going to take it anymore, that one. <laughs> uh, the Verdict with Paul Newman, one of the better formula lawyer, alcoholic lawyer redeems himself movies ever, ever made. Mm-hmm. Those are those are kind of the high points. Sidney Lumet did a lot of stuff and Serpico. Yeah, Serpico. I've seen that one and didn't like it. Yeah, I mean it's as far as gritty seventies kind of things go, it's mm. very gritty and very seventies. Your yeah. mileage may vary. I guess the only other things to say about Lumet was he came up let's see, where was he born? He was born well, I don't remember. I think yeah, he was born in Philadelphia. He came up in kind of the New York acting scene. There was this thing called the Actors Studio in New York, which got started in around the 40s and 50s and brought the or helped bring along with the Stellar Adler, Adler Studio the this thing called method acting, which I think we've talked about before and maybe you're familiar with it. It's where you feel the emotions of the characters. Daniel Day-Lewis is our great method mm-hmm. actor today. He mm-hmm. He's going to go deep. I thought Jared Leto was our great method actor well jared leto would agree with you (laughs) jared leto is the next generation jared leto is the obnoxious stereotype of what happens when someone gets a big head and thinks they're a method actor (laughs) and starts antagonizing and sexually assaulting their Uh, (laughs) co-stars they're being in character because they're being in character (laughs) my character would grope you i mean that is the kind of thing that's been going on now with method acting for a hundred years because men are pigs (laughs) I'm not. A, you don't have to be a Me Too guy to see how, uh, how easy that would be. Powerful to... men. Well, I, I, I once uh, heard a podcast where a young actress who hadn't broken big, but she was just talking on the podcast, and she was like, "You know, anytime I do method stuff, it's always about how the older man is. Uh, don't you think my character would be attracted to you right now and would want to do something perverse?" She just said, "Like." That, that's all it is. Which when you think about your Jack Nicholson's, your Marlon Brando's, your, your famous people who came out of this school, they, they all kind of fit that, mm-hmm. fit that definition. James Dean, of course. That all comes from, oh, we don't have to go on a big thing about method acting. I, I know we've talked about it somewhere before. There was a guy named Stanislavski who had a method in Russia and it made it to America. And it's the th- it's just that you, you become your character. You feel your emotions. You act from the inside out. You smell things, you touch things, you think about the day your dog died in order to make yourself sad, or actually you get into the character and you think about how their dog died and you, you try and become, it's, it's very distinct from the British school where you just act. You simply perform, perform what it looks like. Say the lines. Yeah. There's the famous, famous anecdote of Olivier and, and Hoffman on Marathon Man where Hoffman stayed up for two days so that he could be appropriately tired and bedraggled <laughs> in a torture scene where Olivier's Nazi dentist is torturing him, famous scene. And he couldn't perform his lines because he just, he was too tired. And they were like, what happened? And Huffman said, I was out for two days trying to get ready for this part. And Olivier famously said, it's called acting, my dear boy. <laughs> 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 uh... 
<laughs> it's where you pretend <laughs> right. to be what you're not. <laughs> anyway, before World War II, some of us are good at. It. Yeah, some of us. Some of us are Lawrence Olivier. <laughs> some of us are not. <laughs> some of us have to stay up for two days. <laughs> Lamette was actually part of the New York school, the actor's studio, kind of in its formative years, then as an actor. And then, so he's one of the people that helped kind of found this school. I, not like he was one of the founders, but he was just one of the initial people. Then World War II happens. He does his service, sees a lot of terrible things, which all these guys did. And it definitely informs things like 12 Angry Men. You, you just have to remember when you watch anything made in the mid century that. By and large, those directors had seen real violence, and I just think mm. you can't you can't overstate that. And Lamette tells some really terrifying stories of brutal, immoral things that he saw from our side. He just felt, or, or things even that he participated in or allowed to happen that he just had a hard time living with. But that's neither here nor there. He comes back, becomes a very prolific, very good TV director in TV's golden age when they're actually doing high culture stuff on TV. And then when Henry Fonda and Reginald Rose, the writer, are producing this film of 12 Angry Men, they get Lamette and he's the perfect choice for it because he's fast, he's competent, he knows how to rehearse, he knows actors. He has this great school of New York theater actors who are method trained to draw on, which is basically who everybody is in this movie Lee J. Cobb, the the playing the George, what I think of as the George C. Scott part, is a method guy, a, a New York Actor Studios guy. Basically, all these guys are, and that's Lamette's influence. And Lamette loves actors. He makes actors look good. He does rehearsal. He also, because he comes from TV, he works. People say this about Spielberg too. He work, they both come from TV, and they both know how cameras work, know how lenses work, and work really fast. So Lamette will do a bunch of rehearsal. He'll get everything blocked. He'll get the camera where it needs to be. And then they'll just go do it and they'll, they'll burn through it and it'll all be real planned. But somebody like that will claim that doing it that way actually allows for the best improvisations and inspirations, which I tend to believe seems to reflect reality. And so, yeah, he knocks this movie out of the park and, and gets a career out of it. 12 Angry Men was not a big hit when it came out. It was a critical darling. People loved it. People that loved movies loved it. But it really didn't gain a popular reputation until in later years. And then it really took off. It's always lingering near the top of the IMBD list and things like that. <laughs> People love this movie. But it wasn't a huge hit. And why would it be? I mean... The 1950s is the time of Technicolor and action and spectacle and Ben-Hur. And if you're going to the movie, the movies are actually fighting for their life against TV at this time, which means movies are becoming bigger and more spectacle-driven and more colorful and more widescreen and more you know, this shot and cinemascope. All that kind of stuff is happening. And 12 Angry Men is the antithesis of all that stuff. It's just a little chamber drama in black and white in one room. I mean, I don't know how you sell this movie. You sell it based on Fonda. <laughs> yep. Um, mm -hmm. Or if you're doing it today, you stack that cast with all the stars that mm -hmm. will work for scale because they like the material. You've got Damon and Affleck and... Yeah, uh, what you do Brad is you Pitt. get... What's yeah. this? Ryan Johnson to, to do the remake of it. And right. And cast 
build the kind of cast he had in Knives Out. Knives Out is actually a really good corollary mm-hmm. for right. how this kind of movie would be made today and the kind of filmmaker who's still got the figured out how to work within today's system mm-hmm. to do this kind of mm-hmm. yeah. thing. But Knives Out does work precisely because you have a Daniel Craig and is anyone else really big in that movie? Well, sure. Chris, Jamie Chris, Lee Curtis. Chris Evans. Well, yes, you're right. Chris Evans is. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't just have a Fonda. He's got three or four ringers. Yeah. And yeah. It helps to have three or four ringers. Yeah. They only had. Jamie Lee Curtis is so awesome in that movie. Yeah. I love Jamie Lee Curtis and everything. I just period love Jamie Lee Curtis. She, she She's just, pretty great. She seems like a dude. <laughs> <laughs> she seems like a real dude. <laughs> And she's been great since since Halloween. Oh, and you you, you have mm. you have what's her name? Since True Lies, Tony Collette. There we go. Tony so. Collette's awesome. I mean, True Lies is a great example of a movie that's not that great, but boy, does Jamie Lee Curtis work hard to make it a masterpiece, and she's pretty funny in it. She's pretty awesome in that movie. Writing, performing some bad sexist material written by James Cameron, but man, she br- really does a great job with it. And that's like, one I've never seen. I mean, she's going to do a pole dance in it, so. I knew about that. That's one reason I've never seen it. But that she's going to comedically fall and. Yeah, I mean, as far, like, if if I was an actress and somebody handed me the, you have to pretend to be a stripper uh, scene. You you have to be a, a, a housewife pretending to be a stripper. I would be pretty mad about that. But Jamie Lee Curtis, is, she's just the kind of person that the, the going gets tough. The tough gets going. She really. She makes that where she makes, I'm going to drop the machine gun and it's going to kill four guys. <laughs> so she originated that stuff. Yeah, she's good. I, it also has the famous moment where the bad guy is strapped to the missile and Arnold Schwarzenegger says, you're fired. And <laughs> <laughs> shoots the missile. It's <laughs> pretty great. <laughs> it's got a lot of really good action, but it's pretty stupid and pretty crude. Jamie Lee Curtis is great, though. She's Tom always Allen. great. That's right. Not Tim Allen. Uh, uh, Tom uh, Arnold. Arnold. Yeah. yeah. That's a that's a fun uh, mix Tom up Arnold. though. Yeah. <laughs> Those guys both deserve to be mixed up. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> <laughs> Them and Jim Belushi, maybe all kind of <laughs> same pool. What else is there to talk about? Let's talk about Henry Fonda real quick. He was a Nebraska Christian scientist from a really nice family who worked his way up in Hollywood and Started breaking big in the 30s and famously got cast in his two iconic roles as the eponymous character in Young Mr. Lincoln, 1939, which is a very good movie, but it's John Ford and it's just very yay raw. Lincoln will save us. I mean, it really is. Mm-hmm. It might as well be a movie about Jesus Christ. I mean, and I don't mean that blasphemously. I just mean that's really the kind of movie it is. <laughs> like mm-hmm. Lincoln is the savior. Mm-hmm. And then. Similar thing, Grapes of Wrath. He played the Tom Joad character, who's another liberal do-gooder, mm-hmm. famous. And Fonda, I, I always think of this quote. Somebody was talking about Jaimon Houston. Is that how you say that guy's name? Gladiator's best friend, the black guy. I, it sounds like the way you'd say it. I don't know. I don't know. He was in Gladiator and he was in Amistad and he was in a right. bunch of things where he just Legend played. Legend of the Sword. Legend of the Sword, <laughs> yeah. Arthur. That's right. Yep. But he always plays these really noble characters, or he had this run in the early oddies where he was the, he played the most obnoxiously noble character. Some some new, snarky New Yorker writer said, Jamon Houston's head must hurt from holding it so high in so many movies. And I sort of think that about Henry Fonda. I like the guy, but man, he did mm-hmm. get cast in a lot of these parts. 
And far and away, my favorite performance by him is one that subverts those, where he plays the sadistic villain in Once Upon a Time in the West. Yeah, which is awesome. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, he's he's so good. He's in great. That role. When he massacres that family at the like when he first shows up, yeah. it's amazing. And casting <laughs> against type and baby. the music and everything. Any Morricone score, I, I love that family being massacred. <laughs> it's just a great moment in cinema. That's what I was laughing. At. Well, and, and then <laughs> and then when Fonda, you have to know though. That played so much more subversively then because when Font, when that little boy bites it, when shotguns come out and then Fonda, blue eye, old blue eyes himself walks out, it's like if a family got massacred and then Jimmy Stewart walked out or something like that. Like right. it's just like, what on earth? Because that's what this guy was known for playing. Tom Hanks. Yeah. Tom Hanks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I get Tom Hanks. Well, Road to Perdition is the closest, but he's still noble in that silly thing. Mm-hmm. Fonda famously was good friends with Jimmy Stewart, although Stewart was a conservative Christian and Fonda was a liberal Hollywood Democrat agnostic. And so they got in a big fight about politics once in their careers and then decided they were never going to talk about it again because they, they wanted to be best friends. So there's a cute little Hollywood story for you. And yeah, Fonda always plays these kinds of parts. We can talk about his relative effectiveness in this movie. I, I think he's a much less good save, white savior than Jimmy Stewart. Or there are people that I think bring more nuance to it. So I'm not sure exactly how I feel, but we can talk about it. I don't know if there's any of the other actors that we really need to talk about. Like I said, they're all New York theater guys, pretty much. I think that. Jimmy Stewart would have done a better job in yeah, this role. Yeah, I think so too. He would have brought mm-hmm. some self-awareness and self-deprecation to it that it, w- would have helped. There would yep. have been some internal conflict. Yeah, like, oh, maybe Fonda this guy's not bring. just right about absolutely every word that comes out of his mouth. Yep. Yeah, yep, just yep. like, you know, I, I'm torn, I, but it says it's reasonable doubt, you know? Right. Like, come on, guys. Like, we have to uh, you'd so, be, so, play so with attention. Yeah. yeah, like, you know, he'd be much more the guy who's feels the tension of joining the crowd and sees kind of, you know. And as we've talked about many times with Stuart, he'd also have that kind of angular, sarcastic right. anger. Mm-hmm. Like he yep. knows he's right and everybody and else can take a long walk in the sticks <laughs> kind of, but, but there's a weakness to that that, yeah. that makes well, the Well, he's angry that he's right because he also would like to just go do it get out and go to a ball game yeah when, when he does the stunt where <laughs> yep. it's like you guys all vote and if all of you are still in favor you'd feel much more like Stuart is actually okay with that or wants it to happen yeah. whereas with Fonda it's like oh no he he took a gamble but we could talk more about that I'm trying to think if there's any so Lee J Cobb is has far and away the best part in this movie and I mean if people don't know which one he is he's juror number three the the other big part in the movie the guy with the sun with the guy with sun issues and he's fantastic he famously played Willie Loman in the original run Broadway run of Death of a Salesman and of course he did he's that kind of a guy he's just one of those character actors he always plays those kind of rough abrasive guys sometimes with hearts of gold sometimes with not hearts of gold hmm. it's funny that he was replaced in the same role by George C Scott twice cuz he is just so George C Scottian <laughs> So when they did the when William Friedkin did a TV remake of Twelve Angry Men, George C., in 1997, George C. Scott played the role, and Lee J. Cobb's last role was as the cop in The Exorcist. When they made Exorcist Three, George C. Scott played the role. 
So <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny. They both have the same energy. Although George C. Scott is the superior, abrasive, angry yep. <laughs> dad. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but Lee J. Cobb's fantastic. He's great. Uh, you have Martin Balsam. He's juror number one. Pretty famous for getting stabbed on the stairs in Psycho. If you've ever seen the scene where the guy gets stabbed and the camera follows him as he flails Detective Abernathy. That's Martin Balsam. I don't know if it's worth... You got Ed Begley. He's the father of Ed Begley Jr. He's the racist guy in that scene that I think is a little contrived, but a lot of people is probably their favorite scene in the movie. Got all those good actors. I don't know. I don't know what else we can we can talk about them if as they come up. But yeah, I don't know. I I don't know them by name. I don't know what else I've seen them in. Except I did realize, unfortunately, that Jack Klugman, who he's the guy who grew up in the hood. Mm-hmm. He's. <laughs> He's Quincy, medical examiner in a beloved 70s, 80s show that someone I worked for used to love and put on all the time, and it was terrible. Sorry, Bob, if you're listening. Diagnosis murder? What's no, the, no, what's it's, the show? Called, it's called Quincy, medical examiner. Oh, oh, that's the show. Okay. That's the show. I've never yeah, heard no. of that. I thought I recognized him. Whoa. He's a lot better in this. I didn't even know that was a show. Well, you don't have to. <laughs> you will. <laughs> Why if, would you? <laughs> I, yeah. Quincy Medical. What show is Quincy Medical Examiner in? <laughs> the, the prequel to Dr. Quinn Medicine. <laughs> I know I've seen John Fielder, juror number two, the meek little guy, yeah, play yeah, those yeah, meek yeah. little guys and other things. I mean, his voice is pretty familiar, but I couldn't figure out what it was that I'd seen him in. Oh, he's, he's the voice of Winnie the Pooh, looks like, sometimes. That might be it. Uh, no, no, Piglet. Piglet. Oh, Mm-hmm. That's probably where That's I know his it, voice right? from. Yeah, Piglet, Man, of course. Yeah. Lots of Piglet credits. Yes. Well, he had a good voice for Piglet. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's exactly where I knew his voice from. That's awesome. I love my favorite performance in the movie is E.G. Marshall, juror number four, the right. analytical guy who awesome. prides awesome. himself on his Well, your daggett and true grit. That's who Piglet. That's Piglet. Oh, is he? That's Part awesome. Two. In the original, huh. I take it. Yes. Huh. Uh, let me see here. The uh, broker guy, he was he was great. Yeah. I, I think the other one that people will probably realize they've seen before, just because he always played these kinds of parts, although I couldn't name one off the top of my head, Jack Warden, the, the wisecracking guy that just yeah. wants to get to the baseball game, mm-hmm. uh, who's completely indifferent. He would show up in things, basically playing that same guy. Said the dad and while you were sleeping. Yes. Whatever. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Or he's the uncle or something. Or yeah, he's the uncle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. The godfather. The godfather. Yeah. Right? I think that's right. I just Yes, it's yeah, you're right. Yeah. Godfather. Yeah. That's what it is. I I how in Megan, my wife will love to know that. She loves that movie. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I haven't seen that movie since like the early nineties, but I used to love that movie. I remember it being a very good movie. Let's see here. Huh. Yeah, he's in a ton of stuff. Joseph Sweeney, the old man. He's real great. I don't know. He played the butler in Philadelphia Story, but I don't think he speaks or even got a credit. Hmm. Yeah. 12 Angry Men is far and away his yep. his, his big role. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, he was great at that. <laughs> he was great at being an irritating old man. Yes. I'm, I'm not sure <laughs> I, if I felt like him exactly. I'm not sure whether my feelings and the movie's feelings aligned perfectly with him, but. I thought he was supposed to be irritating and. Yeah. I don't know. It It seems like you could have played that part more sympathetically mm-hmm. well i love how angular everyone is minus fonda minus Fonda. 
everybody seems pretty broken, which I like. And the other thing you have to say about this group of men is it's a wonderful example of the virtue of typecasting. You, oh, yeah. you, you don't have to spend any time with these guys to know who they are, who they are you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. And, and it really, really helps. I mean, you can imagine a movie like this being made where you don't feel like each one is an individual personality. It's like, do you ever really care much about the background people that work at S.H.I.E.L.D. in a Marvel movie? Uh, just to take a unfair mm-hmm. example, maybe. But like, just through the virtues of typecast, this is the fast-talking salesman guy. This is the ethnic guy who's noble. This is the wise old man. <laughs> this is the boiling rage, angry wife beater dad guy. It's just yeah. like, yeah, yeah. You don't have to. This is the working stiff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's just a regular guy. <laughs> Very effective. Movies should not be afraid of typecasting. You you can subvert it. You can use it. I mean, there are ways to use it badly, and there are ways to use it smartly. But it's it's a bad criticism to say. Yeah, they were, they used typecasting. Of course they did. We have twelve angry men, and we need to get to know all of them quickly. We can't mm-hmm. we can't do that without making some assumptions about who each of these guys are. Mm-hmm. So I guess before we just talk our way up through the movie, let me talk about the visual strategy strategy of this movie. Sidney Lumet. One of the reasons he's he is beloved by people who love these kinds of things is that he wrote a great book called Making Movies, where he just talks about his process, and it's one of the most intelligent, articulate books by a major director. The only other one that comes close is a, mo- a book called by Francis Truffaut, Truffaut called Truffaut-Hitchcock, where Truffaut and Hitchcock just had a long conversations about all of Hitchcock's movies. Huh. But Sidney LeMay wrote a book called Making Movies, and he just talked his way through how you actually did the process. And so he talked about working with actors. He talked about lens length and the technical side of things. And it's just all really, really, really interesting. And the big thing with this movie is he realized it was going to be deadly dull if they didn't come up with a compelling visual strategy for it. And so they designed, I think this is, we talk about how camera work affects performance and the the kinds of things you want to notice. This is maybe one of the best movies to just watch that happen in a kind of obvious, like, just as an educational tool, if you want to sort of realize how movies work, this is a really, really good one. Because once you're keyed into what it's doing, it's obvious. And what it's doing is it's starting with the camera above the actors, kind of looking down on them in a very genial kind of way. We're using lenses that emphasize the space and make the room seem bigger. And we're using wide shots that include a lot of people in them. And then as the movie goes, as the tension ratchets up, in the second act, the camera is going to be sort of eye level. And then in the third act, the camera is going to be low and it's going to be looking up and the people are going to be looming over us. The shot, the composition is going to get tighter and tighter as if these men are being caged into this room. And the focal length of the lens, which we don't have to talk about the technical side of this, but we're going to go from a widescreen lens to a telephoto lens. And what a telephoto lens does is it compresses space. And so you're going to feel like the walls really close in on these men. And so it's going to start, even even though it's the same room, it's the same set, they're not going to change anything. There's going to be a couple things to punctuate it, like the rain. But basically, we're just going to adopt this visual strategy where the room is going to slowly 
shrink shrink mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. close in and it's going to get hotter mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's going to feel sweatier sweatier more and, and more these, sweat and these guys are going to go from guys that were kind of looking down on just watching process to these iconic figures that we're looking up on you know by the time Lee J Cobb breaks down you know he's this almost mythic figure of pathos and anger and all this stuff and Fonda is this mythic hero but that's not how it starts so that's something to look for the other thing to look for is good oneers and what i mean by that is a shot that takes a long time and features several different kinds of compositions close-ups wide shots over the shoulder but it's all in one shot spielberg's master of this too um and it creates a room you can imagine a hack director now just doing a bunch of close-ups of faces as they talk to each other but there's a lot of times where fonda will walk around the table a good scene to watch is the scene where fonda demonstrates the way that the man walked the old man that couldn't make it and so you'll start with a, a tight shot of lee jacob's face and then it'll pan up as fonda walks by him then fonda will be looking over his shoulder and then fonda will walk over he'll stand between two characters that need to have their dialogue and then the camera will pull back and it's all very elegant and it creates relationships between the characters and you know if we were doing a commentary right now we could point out individual examples of it but just notice how not choppy this movie is how much mm-hmm. it includes different people in different combinations in different compositions together to create relationships through camera movement and realize that those actors all had to hit really specific marks that were probably you know probably tape on the ground like fonda you need to stand here if this is going to work and then lee j gobb's going to come and look around your shoulder and stand glowering in the background and he's not doing anything except for hitting that mark all this kind of stuff that would have been worked out in rehearsal and done yeah. done it's choreography yeah right? it's choreography it is, yeah. just like a dance just yeah. like a fight scene yeah but it really brings this movie to life and this movie could be so deadly dull if mm-hmm. they weren't doing smart things like that and you can read sydney the chapter on it in sydney lamette's making movies and he talks about all this stuff and it's just really interesting yeah it's a way of it's a way of getting a lot more performance out of the actors too yeah because it makes you pay attention to specific things that they're doing and the camera is doing is letting you pay attention to those things if you just have the script. Well, and because we aren't, yeah, exactly. And because we aren't doing things like just having everybody in close-up all the time, when we cut to a close-up, it can be really powerful. So, for example, the old man gets a lot of close-ups because the old man tends to see through people and be able to cut th- cut to cut through a lot of the chaff of the arguments and so when the old man has his first big revelation like i believe you or you know he has some obnoxious thing right um it's going to suddenly be a pretty abrasive like close-up of the old man and we really haven't gotten a close-up for 20 minutes before that mm-hmm. which really makes it pop and there's any number of things where when they do lean on just the normal things that we're, we associate with cinema because they're not overdoing them they really pop and they really lend weight and importance so many movies are just a series of medium shots and close-ups without any space being established without any choreography and this movie's just much smarter than that and it would be a much more boring movie even if you don't appreciate these things on a on a cinematic craft level 
you're still just being entertained by the way that people walk around each other, the way mm-hmm. that on a subliminal level, you're getting so much more. You would feel it if it wasn't there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm, you'd be bored. Yeah. And it's interesting. There's an interesting counterpoint. You can watch three versions of this. You can watch the old television version. 1954. Free on YouTube. Yep. And you can watch, I think also free on YouTube, actually, but with ads, you can watch the 1997 version, which has Jack Lemmon, Ossie Davis, George C. Scott. Tony Danza. Tony Danza. Number eight. Which one's eight? Eight, Eight's it's it's Fonda, right? No, no, no. Jack Lemmon is Fonda. No, no, he's, he's, he's number seven. He's the guy always making quips with a hat who wants uh, to go to the ball game. Yep. Oh, of course. Of course, yeah. that would be Danza. <laughs> well, you know, typecasting. Yeah. <laughs> we had to get one of the three men and the baby guys in here. Where's uh, Tom Selleck? Tom Selleck actually could be juror number eight. He, he kind of plays those kind of guys uh-huh. these days with that dumb show, Blue Bloods. Blue Bloods. Bloods. Yeah. yeah. Um, is a dumb show. Well, you want to watch a show where it's just a bunch of medium shots and close-ups and nobody's put any thought into it. <laughs> watch Blue Bloods. Man. So that's most of what I think. Did you, were you a woman in the 80s who thought Tom Selleck was hot? Mm-hmm. Look at him now as the daddy. Right. <laughs> He's, <laughs> <on>. <laughs> He's the upright hero yep. who's going to... And we have nothing else to go on but that. <laughs> right. Besides uh, a lesser Wahlberg. <laughs> yeah, it's me. It's Donnie Wahlberg. <laughs> I wish I was Mark, but I'm not. So I'm on Blue Bloods. <laughs> because the subliminal plot of every episode. <laughs> I hate that show. <laughs> Never I, seen it. I know people love it, but... Just because something has ostensibly conservative values doesn't make it good. And you know what? It actually doesn't. Uh, so, there's my two cents on Blue Bloods. All right. Well, I don't know, guys, if we're going to be able to sort of... I've been debating what's the best strategy to talk through this movie because it's all kind of one thing. I don't know that we can just go through the plot like we yeah. we normally would. But I, I guess we should litigate Fonda. That's probably the first thing. Do you guys like Fonda in this movie is just just saying jimmy stewart would do it better is that is that really all we want to say about that or that's all i want to say it's a really tough role to play Mm -hmm. and he did a great job and there's a reason why the movie is a classic and there are a million ways he could have fumbled it and failed and made us hate made everybody hate the movie and so yeah i do think just saying out loud that jimmy stewart would have done it better is worth saying that's also saying uh, the greatest actor of the 20th century. Like, right. Uh, yeah, right. Michael Jordan would have uh, <laughs> really done some good basketball there. Like, <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not saying a lot. Just saying that it, it's a way to point out that he doesn't bring a lot of nuance to, to the role. And that was because he wasn't supposed to, but that might have been a, a misstep. Mm-hmm. He's work, he's working against the script, though, I think. Or if he w- was going to bring any nuance, he would have to work against the script because the script yeah. just writes this guy as the progressive ideal. Yeah. And I don't, th- right. I, I think that is think a weakness. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington's written the exact same way. Right. And Stewart's much more fun in it, even playing his most young idealistic version of Stewart. Right. He just brings more yeah. to that part. Well, and also Claude Rains is allowed to be more conflicted as the evil senator and I forget which one of the blondes of the time is the girl in that, but she's allowed to be really good. So some of it's probably Capra, right? Well, yeah. Yeah. Bringing the angst. Yeah, I think Capra is a better, uh, well, 
Lamette was a good director, but mm-hmm. in terms of material, Capra was better at these kind of liberal fantasy. I mean, he was the mm-hmm. best. He's Frank Capra, for crying yeah. out loud. Yeah, I mean, his name's now an adjective. So, <laughs> what Capra probably would have done. Capra esque. Yeah. Capra esque. Capra would have given us a better hero. He may well have given us a much worse Lee J. Cobb character. Like, mm-hmm. he, he may have brought less sympathy to the antagonists, quote, quote unquote. Like, even the racist guy gets a little bit of sympathy in this movie. Like, yeah. he, he's, he's aware that he's, you know, he's, he's sad and we're allowed to feel sad with him that everybody turned their back on him. Capra might punish that guy a little bit mm-hmm. more. Um, and he might punish Lee J. Cobb a little bit more. And Capra, it's hard to think of him designing it so, as well as Lament. It's hard to think of anybody designing it I as mean, well as. It's one of the most designed movies I can think of. Yeah. I mean, it's just. It, but Ryan Johnson really is who comes to mind. Yeah. R- Ryan Johnson in terms of modern filmmakers. Kn- or- Knives Out is what I thought. It's what I had in my head. Yeah. What's the where's the analog mm-hmm. for something like this? That's, that's as good as you get. That's as close as you get. Yep, capture I'm, everything precisely. Yeah, there are people that want. would do something interesting with you know Scor- sure. Scorsese would make it explosive and there'd be slow motion and they, uh, Spielberg would do a good job. You know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Michael Jordan could uh, <laughs> play some basketball, but yeah, I mean, the in terms of somebody who had the hunger and the humility and the desire to get it right and everything, you know, right, right person at the right time. You just, you could not, you cannot do a better yeah. version of this script. It's just, I honestly enjoy this movie more as a technical exercise than anything. The plot is moving and I, I think I shed a few tears, but once you've seen it once or twice, there's not a lot of meat on that bone to go back to. I don't think. I know people love this movie. I don't mean to be condescending. It's a it's a classic. It's a great movie. But it's pretty it's got one thing to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's a good thing to that to say and it's a thing that needs to be said over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And hey, I appreciated hearing it in 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 the wake of these modern times, you yeah. know, uh, post Derek Chauvin reasonable and, doubt. Yeah. Our, our whole justice system is founded on the idea of reasonable doubt, innocent until proven hmm. guilty. Well, that is one thing that's And so- they're not declared innocent at the point of verdict. They're declared not guilty. Mm-hmm. We don't know about the innocence of this person, but we know that we don't have enough to go on to find him guilty. And that's what's so smart about this movie is we, we really don't know at the end. We just know that we don't know. Yeah. And that's so much better than... Like, you just imagine your standard do-gooder progressive person making the movie now, they would stack the deck so much more, and it would be, and all the sort of liberal grandstanding would be so much more obnoxious, and it would be about the system just wants to destroy this innocent person. And this movie's like, well, we don't know what what, he's innocent, and the system can be cruel. Well, and then it would want to say, well, we should make a system that wants to destroy a different kind of innocent like, yeah, person. We should destroy Lee J. Cobb's character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Ed Begley's character, the racist and the mean dad. Yep. But this movie, in a way that probably doesn't play very well for, for liberals, wants to give some sympathy to those characters. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just, you don't imagine that modern Twitter culture would be all that happy with Fonda helping Cobb on with his jacket there at the end. Right. Or with Ed Begley getting any kind of 
sympathy, which he doesn't get much, but no. the camera does linger on him as he realizes his own nastiness. Yeah, it's a, it's, I, it's a good moment. Yeah. And the, yeah, and the, and the touch with the coat, maybe, I don't know, maybe the best touch. Fonda helping him putting on, put on his jacket at the end. Yeah. Uh, the last five minutes of this movie, I mean, Lee J. Cobb's breakdown and then Fonda helping him put this jacket on are all simultaneously great and a little bit of a, not, not let down exactly, but it is just like, oh, okay, I guess it's We're over. Done. We're done. <laughs> yep. But I sort of love it that it doesn't have to go for fireworks, that we don't have to follow them back into the courtroom, that we don't have to mm-hmm. have take, the prosecutors be all surprised. That we don't have to have a woman waiting to talk to Fonda just so we can have a woman in this movie. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's nice all the things that this movie doesn't, doesn't do. do. Mm-hmm. All the studio notes that you could see them getting. Now, like, where's, where's the romance? <laughs> <laughs> well, did you want it to be a gay story? Because... It's 12 angry men. (laughs) (laughs) Have Fonda slip out and talk to the, hit on the court stenographer or something. (laughs) I mean, honestly, that's the kind of, (laughs) that's actually what Capra would probably do. (laughs) Come to think of it. And we'd be happy. (laughs) Yeah, they'd take bathroom breaks and he'd be processing it with the stenographer and she'd be (laughs) supporting him. And and Um, we'd go back out to the courtroom and... Oh, he'll, man. he'll have won the day and she'll be, you know, you'll ha- she'll have that look in her eyes. Oh, no, I don't want to see this movie. <laughs> I do. I do. This movie I, sounds great. I, I don't. I'm done. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't be 12 Angry Men. It'd be a different it movie. It would be a different movie. <laughs> it could be good. I mean, we, we basically, he basically just described Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which is a good movie. I I like that it ends with with a with a I think a fade out shot of everyone walking down the stairs from a long distance away and you can you can kind of make out oh I think that's Lee J Cobb coming last kind mm. of kind of worn out kind of done right yeah well I don't this is where the old man might stray into the movie likes him a little bit better than I do territory because they they give the old yeah, man the yeah, yeah. the final a beat. name yeah. And I'm just like, ah, whatever. Give Lee J. Cobb a name. He's the person we actually care about. Like, the old man's not that important in the scheme of things. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the movie kind of wants to tell you, like, it's a good thing the old man and Henry Fonda teamed up to save the day. Mm-hmm. But he did convince the broker. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. And I love that broker. What a, what a great character. I had forgotten all about him, so maybe maybe he he just had the most <laughs> element of surprise. Like oh, I forgot that they had that type in this movie. That's uh, a fun type. That. The hardest nut to crack, actually. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that feels weird about this movie is that it has anything to do with establishing what actually happened. I mean, I, I really I just couldn't help but process the whole thing through Derek Chauvin. Mm. I mean, mm-hmm. and it was just like, oh, this broker they created this broker character who actually cares about the facts. <laughs> that's <Yeah>. weird. <laughs> Why is that a thing? <laughs> Why would we say that's on a jury? And if the facts change, then his opinion will change. As a, you know, Lee J. Cobb's character makes sense. Like that's the kind of character you'd write now. And it just like, oh, he was motivated by emotion. And when the emotions change, he changes. He changes. Yeah, we understand that. Mm-hmm. But a, a, a guy who's actually like, you've changed my mind because you convinced me. There was an argument. It was rational. And mm-hmm. I'm, I care about truth. Yeah. It's like, what is uh, truth? Yeah. Who is this guy? <laughs> what planet is he from? <laughs> what was his old movie? Is this sci-fi? <laughs> gender are you really serving <laughs> truth, He's an man? alien. <laughs> Did you guys remember? Superman. 
truth, justice, and the American way. Kryptonian. Yeah. Kryptonian. Mr. Spock. Yeah. Mr. Spock, yeah. yeah. Okay. They should have gotten Leonard Nimoy to play that character. <laughs> <laughs> Live long oh, and dear. prosper. He could have said that at the end. Oh, data. <laughs> data. data. <laughs> they don't let us out much. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, Brent Spiner actually would have been good as one of the other characters, like just yeah, the yeah, goofy yeah. guy, maybe. Okay. What else is there to talk about? It's interesting that they make the, that they don't, do you guys like the fact that we don't establish an ethnicity, but we're just playing with the platonic thing of ethnicity? We, and that we actually show the kid and he's vaguely not Hispanic. White. Yeah. He's it's kind of, or, it's Hispanic. Or Jewish. Yeah. yeah. But we don't, they, the movie does, wants to maybe. leave it ambiguous. Yeah. I had remembered that he was black. I think we had this conversation before where I was like, oh, yeah, it's got this whole black thing element going. And you guys were like, no, it's it's ambiguous. And I, I actually didn't remember it, which speaks well of the movie. I think it it allows mm-hmm. you to Import plug whatever in you. whatever, yeah. whatever you want, whatever is mm-hmm. pertinent to your situation. Maybe that's your answer. It It worked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't have strong feelings about it. I mean, it makes it more of a fable, which is right. a good thing. Probably. I think so. I think it's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, gosh. Okay. What else is there to talk about? Do you guys think that the detective story holds up or is it a little sweaty or what? I think I remembered it as being more sweaty than it actually was. I mean, there's the thing with like sh- the glasses. The la- She's a woman. She wears glasses. Um, oh, yeah. that That's sweaty. That yeah. one. Oh, I noticed that you rubbed your nose and mm-hmm. she was doing the same thing. She wasn't. That means she wears glasses, but she would, but she would have woke. Uh, you know how vain women are. Yeah, that, twelve, 12 sexist men. That, I, I think that's one of the sweatier, maybe the sweatiest uh, <laughs> element. It still seems to work, though. I'm I trying to think. What are all the elements? It there's, is, but there's the knife. There's the d- double knives. There's the old man who couldn't have gotten out of his apartment. That one's good, I think. That's good. The walk. The walk. The, yeah. The there's the, the downward stab. The downward so it's stab. not just the common switchblade. It's also the downward stab versus mm-hmm. the upward stab. That one's fine because the movie doesn't put a ton of weight, weight on, on it. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're like, well, it's possible, but it's not likely. There's the woman in a soccer. There's the woman without her glasses. Yeah. There's, there's, the, there's the noise of the train. Did you say that already? We didn't. No, but that's... 10 seconds of noise or whatever. That one's pretty good. I mean, they're all kind of a little bit circumstantial, like... <laughs> You mm-hmm. could you could imagine if the train was two seconds late or But it was partly because it was because the woman saw the stabbing through the last car. Anyway, it was like anyway, it 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 tied in with the other facts mm-hmm. in a way that was pretty decent. I'll kill him. That set up and payoff. Yeah. 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 I mean, if your job as a writer is to make it look like it's completely a shut case and then undo it such that all 12 jurors can be okay with it, not with, with innocent. I don't know how you could do a better job. There are, there are things here and there that feel a little sweaty maybe, but I think it, I think it works partly because you see, I, I don't know, even the glasses thing, the broker's the, the glasses like, and I'll kill them. Those are the two sweatiest ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Remind me what, what's the significance of, they hear the boy say, I'll kill him. Right. And so they say, well, lots of people, 
Yeah, Fonda's like, you've probably said that 30 or 40 times. Or, yeah, 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 and, yeah, and then, yeah, yeah. And then they get worked up. The part that's sweaty is they get worked up into the heat of the moment, and the guy proves the point. By, Lee J. Cobb says, I'll kill you. Yeah. yeah. And then he's and then everyone's like, oh. <gasps> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty contrived. But. Yeah. I like glasses better than that. I don't know. Brokers, the broker's gonna, the broker prides himself on being picayune or whatever, mm-hmm. finding the little details that matter. And yeah. so. If you break one or make him doubt it, then yeah, it works as a character point anyway. Yeah. And especially if you're thinking of this thing as a little stylized, as a fable, as a, I mean, it works on, oh yeah, works on that level for yeah, sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Let's see here. Oh, one thing I did want to say about all the evidence, man, here's a, here's a dumb thing that a modern movie would do. And I think it just would distract, detract so much. I love that we don't flash to anything. I love that we don't see any of it. I love that this movie creates yeah. a world. Not even a modern movie. Hitchcock would do that. Yeah, yeah. There's all right. kinds of... Hmm. There, there's good precedent. There's good ways of doing it, and there's bad ways of doing it. But what I think a lot of modern movies don't realize is it's still powerful to do what a book or a radio program does and create a world in people's heads. And this movie mm-hmm. gains a lot of power from us gradually getting a picture of these different things the fact that we don't we're the 13th juror right yeah yeah exactly and we're supposed to leave convinced and and voting not guilty too which means we can't see anything right we can only see what the men in the room have seen well and it helps the sweaty stuff wipe some of that sweat off its brow because we don't we don't have our own image of how dented the woman's nose was with the glasses mm-hmm. or how how actually crippled the old man was. Yep. And so we can just kind of go along and, well, I guess they saw it and they're all convinced by it. So yeah. we don't have to think too hard about it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I love, I love movies that refer to things that don't happen. I don't know if anybody ever saw the classic art film, My Dinner with Andre, where Andre and Wally just talk the whole time about their lives. And I've heard of this. I mean, it's, it's pretty boring and pretentious, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of fun because Andre is just telling him stories and it, it really is just sitting with, a, like sitting with a great storyteller and hearing about his experiences. And at the end of the movie, you kind of walk away with the experience of Andre's stories. And this is similar. You kind of walk away with a picture of this whole detective story, but mm-hmm. I don't know. It just makes you realize how cheap somebody like Peter Jackson is, not to beat up on my favorite whipping boy, but we're going to cut back to Aragorn and Arwen and write a lame love scene for them and waste yeah. everyone's time. And it's like, <laughs> actually, if you had any art at all, you could just refer to this or mm-hmm. create a little world in our heads and it'd be so much better. Peter Jackson, take a hint from 12 Angry Men. Why don't you, you hack? <sighs> okay. What else? So we talked about the detective element of it. Anything else you guys want to car- highlight about the the characterizations? We got Fonda. We, we litigated Fonda. We found him guilty of being a little bit righteous. But still a compelling performance. He's, he's good. I mean, there's a reason... You like seeing him play those kinds of parts. Mm-hmm, he he, br- mm-hmm. he does bring world weariness to it. I like how thin and kind of bedraggled he is. Gaunt. And gaunt. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's fun. The fact that he doesn't seem to have any vanity about just looking bad in this movie is adds a lot. And just his weariness in general. I mean, Fond is pretty great in this. I, I, great. I guess we He's probably awesome. should have talked more about that before we made some minor criticisms that Jimmy Stewart would have been better. <laughs> <laughs> 
Fun is great. And it takes a lot of skill to play such a stiff part, such a do-gooder part. And In make a way it, that doesn't make you irritated the whole time. Yeah. And, yep. and Fonda, he does do that. And it's yeah, great. It so many ways uh, this could go bad and it never yeah. does. What about Lee J. Cobb? Do you guys think he's, is he too much? He chews on the scenery pretty hard, but he's effective. I mean, I feel, I think it feels like that guy would, like he really yeah. is that angry and that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I always thought it was a little contrived, the whole sun thing. I'm, I mean, it's, it's just when the movie abandons any sort of docudrama feel and it's like, oh, this is a story about, mm. a, you know, mm-hmm. father and he's looking at the picture and everything mm-hmm. and he tears it up and it's like, okay, well, yep. this is very stylized actually. This is, this is a, this is a stage play. This is a Shakespeare. This is, this is good, mm-hmm. but what it's not is a look into the actual judicial yeah process right but if i'm writing it i don't know how i would hit that beat without yeah you need him you need him to go crazy and rip up the picture and then say not guilty (laughs) 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 i don't know how you could get there with less sweat every everyone's fun everyone's fun to watch i wonder maybe we should just recast it real fast oh yeah that's fun that's fun let's do it so with modern living actors right so it has to be like a cast that would work in 2021. All right. So you've got Martin Balsam as juror number one. Let's come back to him. He's, at least I would, I want to, because he's. Okay, who's our Fonda? Maybe he's hard because he's simple. So Tom Hanks is an obvious one. <sighs> let's, be uh, more, let's be more creative mm, yeah. than that. Yeah. I mean, right. if you wanted, I mean, it's what. Uh, how about Robert Downey Jr.? Mm. Somebody playing that at an odd angle to the part. Yeah. He perfected that as <laughs> Iron Man. Cocky liberal do-gooder. Well, mm-hmm. let me let me uh, make an alternate pitch for Robbie Downey Jr. What if he's the what if he's Lee J. Cobb actually? Like let's let, if we're gonna have him play at a weird angle to the material, huh. let let him play the angry <laughs> dad actually because I bet he could nail it huh. and it would be completely out of left field. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure there's more obvious cat. We could get Brendan Gleeson for that part. Or, uh, <laughs> yeah, you could get Brendan Gleeson for that. Adam Driver. <laughs> Adam Driver for Fonda. That's good. That could be cool. That could be cool. Adam Driver's, he might be really good. Let's just take the Dune cast and plug them in. <laughs> <laughs> Timothy Chalamet is on trial. Javier Bardem is someone. Ooh, I mean, he could, you could plug him yeah. into anything. <laughs> anything. Uh, Oscar Isaacs could. I know. Oscar Isaacs. It, Oh that's, boy, are we that's, just that's actually that's gonna... hilarious. Okay, who's Jason Momoa? <laughs> <laughs> Jason 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 Momoa could be the wisecracker guy. That'd be fun. Oh yeah, that would be fun. You want to just see how far we can get with the Dune cast? I don't know. <laughs> you, you you're gonna have to deal with what's his name? <laughs> Kronk the Avenger. Dave, Dave <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh, he could play the ethnic guy, one of the ethnic guys. He could yeah, play yeah. the he could play the wise crack the Avengers. Dave, <laughs> Dave, Dave Bautista could be the could be actually juror number one because he because he can play that kind of pathetic thing. Mm-hmm. Well, like yeah, I'm I'm here to do the thing, and you guys don't like me, and I'm st- I'm still gonna do the thing. For me, the key moment I actually really like the performance of juror number one, and the key moment is when for me is when he says juror number one. Oh, that's me. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. That that was really good. Like he's doing his job. He, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not a bad dude, but no. he's also he also would love to just go home. Like, but he's gonna make sure that we follow process. And he, I think he's quite good. Yeah. 
Oh, gonna... right, right, right. Of course. Uh, <laughs> Josh Brolin, who's he going to be? Josh Brolin. Man, this is an amazing cast. It I mean, is an amazing cast. Josh it's Brolin ridiculous. could be Lee J. Cobb. Just depends on how old you want to cast Lee J. Cobb, but Josh Brolin could play an angry father for easily. I mean, what is Thanos if not an angry father? Yeah, actually, that might be pretty cool. Josh Brolin would actually be a really good Fonda, too, come to think of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, he's a great everyman and like, no country for old men. Yeah. Who's the racist guy? That one actually feels a little harder to do well. It has to be someone that brings a little sympathy to it. Yeah, that's what makes it hard. Well, and you can lean away or towards the things that this movie does. Like, do you make it an old racist guy who's just behind the times? Or do you make it a younger guy who we as an audience, therefore, indict more for his racism? Yeah, that's hard. What they would do in a modern movie is they'd give it a backstory. So, they'd take a, they'd take a, a minority who'd been oppressed by a different minority. Mm-hmm. And they'd have a story. So, that could be Jason Momoa. Because he's like... Or Oscar Isaac. Or Oscar Isaacs, yeah. Who's the guy who grew up in the hood, grew up in the slums? Okay, this makes me a racist, I know, but I get the ethnic types confused. There's the watchmaker who mm-hmm. just loves America and loves due right. process. Is he the same as the guy that grew up in the no, slums? No, 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 no. He's, he's, he's the European immigrant. The guy who grew up, grew up in the slums is the guy who knows the switchblade. Yes. He's he, like, he's one of my favorite characters, actually. Yeah, I like him. Uh. Yeah, Jack Klugman. All right, we got to cast this thing, guys. <laughs> so, who's our, right. who's our Fonda? Uh, I don't Keanu know. Keanu Reeves. <laughs> awesome. Keanu Reeves can play the defendant. <laughs> <laughs> but guys. <laughs> <laughs> the suspect was seen acting in Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> Execute. Was he, was, was he really acting? <laughs> Good point. Reasonable doubt. <laughs> uh, uh. Has this man shown any ability to act? <laughs> I want to cast Brad Pitt as the salesman guy because I can see Brad Pitt doing that mannered thing where he pushes the glasses up on his nose. Oh, and, and he'd be eating oh, yeah. crackers the whole time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Brad Pitt would love it. <laughs> yeah, Brad Pitt. <laughs> very Brad Pitt role. Right. Okay, so Brad... If we're doing that, then who gets to be George Clooney and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who does I think... George Clooney get to be and who does... Well, George Matt Clooney, Damon by the way, is a, is a perfect example of a liberal do-gooder that would screw this movie up by stacking the deck in all kinds of ways and he'd mm-hmm. probably cast himself as Fonda and then yep. he'd want you to like him even more than Fonda wants you to like yeah, him and I think just be he's stupid. super sexy. This is weird, but if if you've seen Richard Jewell, the movie Richard Jewell, you would probably agree with this. Sam Rockwell could be Henry Fonda. He would do a pretty great job. Yeah, Sam Rockwell, I, I, I would agree with that. Uh, I think this podcast gives Sam Rockwell a disproportionate amount of love. Sorry about that. I, <laughs> <laughs> I just seen, seen him in some good movies. Uh, he was the best part of Iron Man 2. I like Sam Rockwell, but I always think of him from Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, which mm-hmm. was, he was pretty gross, and in the movie was gross. Uh, anyway. Yep, he's a gross guy. All right. We've, so far, I've written down Brad Pitt is playing the salesman. Mm-hmm. That's all we got so far. Um, <laughs> all right. So, who's Fonda? I wrote down Keanu Reeves, but that's not correct. <laughs> Gary Oldman. You can get Christian Bale in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you, you could. Christian Bale's great. Christian Bale actually could do Henry Fonda. I wouldn't want Christian Bale as Henry Fonda. I'd want him as one of the colorful characters because I like Christian Bale when he's playing color a lot more than when he's playing straight. Lead. Yeah. So. Yeah. It it depends on, it. Uh, for me, the distinction is warm or cold Christian Bale. Cold is Nolan's Christian Bale. No, I want warm, warm talkative is... Christian Bale from The Fighter or, or smarmy yeah. American psycho Christian Bale. Any kind of. Any flavor of Bale I'll take besides 
Nolan's Christopher Christian Bale. Yeah. Okay. Or Terminator's Christian. I mean, there's any number of flat hero Christian Bale roles, but that's not why we want. Christian all right. Bale. All right. Casey Affleck's got to play someone. Oh yeah, he could be like the house painter that <laughs> doesn't want people to be taken advantage of or whatever. Ben could be Fonda. Me. Ben Affleck. <laughs> I was like, you said Casey thanks. Affleck. And it's I said awesome. Ben. I'll ben Affleck it. could be the we'll Fonda character. Oh, <laughs> Ben Affleck, yeah. I think that's a lateral move. I think Ben Affleck brings a lot of the same things that Henry Fonda, Fonda does, does, actually. You don't think he brings conflict and anger that... I think he can. Maybe a little. You'd have to tell him to, though. A good, a good director could get the right performance did you, out Did you of. see him in The Way Back? Way Back. I don't, I don't think so. He he could totally do it. Was that his, was that his big sports comeback movie? Alcoholics coach sports comeback movie that I think may... It, it was good. It was quite good. And he was... He was like what you wanted Fonda to be or something. All right. I'll go out on a limb. Shall we yes. cast him? Sure. I don't All know. Right. It's just an idea. I think it's a good idea. All right. Are we going to put Damon in somewhere then? I mean, since we're doing the <laughs> Oceans, Oceans movies. <laughs> if we're doing Oceans, I say we make Clooney do Juror 3. Juror number 3. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree. Which one is 3? Sorry. Uh, Lee J. Cobb. Oh. Actually, yeah. No, I think that's good. He yeah. Clooney could actually give something that Cobb doesn't, which is... You start, you think that this guy is rational and reasonable, but he unravels and reveals his dark heart yeah. as he goes. Yeah, that would be cool. So, I like that a lot. Who's going to play juror number four, the the precise broker dude? That's a really fun part for the right actor. You almost want to give it to Adam Driver, but I, I don't know about that. I mean, you could go against type and give it to... Emilio Estevez. <laughs> Yeah. Where's yes. Emilio Estevez? <laughs> he, he plays a role like that in uh, the first Mission Impossible movie. That's right. That's right. A very brief role. <laughs> yes. I mean, you get like a Gary Oldman or somebody who'd bring a little spice to juror number four, maybe. Don Cheadle. No, no, no. <laughs> Agreed. I'm looking through the Agreed cast the of no. Oceans. I always forget that Casey Affleck's actually in Yes, Right. Um, Doesn't have much to do. No, he didn't. So, we've got Clooney, Affleck, and Brad Pitt so far. This is becoming an expensive movie. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Go big or go home, man. Yeah. Bernie Mac. <laughs> Bernie Mac. All right. I mean, we could just do Gastel and Skarsgård as juror number four. He was born for it. Just get one of those guys that plays a good analytical uh, sure, type. Sure. But eh, we could do something more interesting. than Michael Fassbender, juror number four. You know what? Fine. I, I think that's great as a... As dream casting, Michael Fine. Fassbender. Mike, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure. I'm, I'm almost Quite sad. Awesome. I'm sad because that's almost too good. Like, you yeah, know, the guy that played Steve Jar Jobs. Kaczynski. Kaczynski would be a really good Fonda. That's fun. I actually kind of like that better than Ben Affleck. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it, but I don't know. It's just a little different. I think Affleck brings more weariness and yeah. age to it, which is a, a, a good plus. thing to bring. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm putting in Fassbender for juror number four. But you could put in Krasinski in this in this class in this class this cast. Uh, who's the board well, judge? Maybe. Nice cameo. That could be Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, that's uh. <laughs> <laughs> actually. Yeah, no, actually, not. yeah, that's that's awesome. It's actually the Alec Baldwin part, but we'll give it to Robert Downey Jr. If you're gonna do that, then then, then make the working stiff John Favreau. Uh, <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah, I like that. Okay. So he's the. Uh, if you talk to him like that again, I'll lay you out. Okay, which one is that? He's the house painter? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, that's John Favreau. I love that. I mean, he could also play the smarmy salesman guy, but that's almost too on the nose. Yeah. 
So did we leave out the we left out the guy in the slums, the guy from the slums, the quiet guy? Yeah, we don't have that guy. That's yet. Adam Driver if you want. Or Adrian Brody if you want. I don't I don't want Adrian Brody. You don't no. like Adrian Brody? Eh, I'm just I don't know. I've had enough Brody in my life. I like Adrian Brody. I like Brody and Jaws. Brody. Yeah. Can we get Roy Scheider? He's dead. Get Rob Schneider. <laughs> <laughs> He's the defendant. Yeah, <laughs> the movie's five Sandler. minutes long. <laughs> yeah. I'll choose guilty. <laughs> Adam Sandler's the judge. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> what would you want Adam Sandler to play in this movie? Because if you have him play serious, it can be pretty fun. I mean, Adam Sandler would make a fantastic jury number three, actually. Like yeah, the Lee J. Cobb part, yeah. he, could, he would knock out of the park because Adam Sandler plays yeah. aggression. Angry as well as anybody. As well as anybody. That would be awesome. I mean, Adam Sandler could play the guy who grew up in the slum. Yeah. He could do that easy. Not even trying. It would feel like a waste. Guys, we got to get this cast. So, we got Robert Downey Jr. as the judge. (laughs) So, there's the indecisive advertising. Tom Cruise, the judge. Tom. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Aboard Tom Cruise. That's (laughs) hilarious. It'd be funny. It'd be really funny. Fine. We'll do the Tom Cruise. (laughs) That means RDJ's still. (laughs) We can still cast him. He's still a. out there so juror number 12 he's one of the most nondescript he's the advertising guy who's just kind of waffles back and forth that, that's that's brad pitt no brad pitt is i thought brad pitt was the smarmy salesman wait who's the smarmy you could do that but i was no see because the advertising guy is the guy who pushes his glasses up on his nose and says silly things mm-hmm. you just think of brad pitt in a bit uh, yeah okay like that. that's okay good it's i'm fine if you want to, if you want to switch him I no just, no no there's a better, i just saw brad pitt playing that part there's like, a better salesman look i'm brad pitt and i could do this too yeah so who plays the fast talking salesman guy and that was an easy robert downey jr but that gives that's, the part almost too, too much easy. adam driver yeah. he'd have a lot of fun with it that's that's testing against type he'd be he'd be sneering the whole time but in a way that was charming he might just bring too much to the part, though. Like, suddenly that guy... Leo. Would... <laughs> Leo would want to do that part, and that's why he's an idiot. Oh, no. Who are the other, like, fast-talking guys these days? <laughs> Chris Pratt! <Hey. Rapp. laughs> <laughs> no! That... What's his face? He tells the, the... The Hispanic dude, he tells the stories in the... They think it's hilarious in the Ant-Man movies. He's a fast-talker. He's a lot of fun, actually. You bring some comedy to it. Yeah, yeah I, I, like I know his name. I like that guy. Yeah, let's give it to him. So he plays juror number. Yeah, Robert Pena is actually pretty funny. Robert Pena. Which, but that that brings up racist dude, J.K. Simmons. I think I'm racist that's, dude. That's almost too easy, but I'm always happy to see J.K. Simmons. <laughs> so, <laughs> sure. All right, uh, it's okay. J.K. Simmons is juror number ten. The racist bringing him back into Batman as that. Commissioner Gordon. For real. As yep. Barbara Gordon's dad and Batwoman or Batgirl. Um, oh, is that what it was? Yeah, unfortunately. Oh. Right, we need the European watchmaker kind of guy. How you ever them? Yep. Just Love take it. him in there. Love it. Uh, oh, man. <laughs> there was someone, there's someone I was just thinking of. Oh, I lost him. Man, someone we wanted in this movie. Well, who's McArdle, the the wise old man. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You get Hopkins, Anthony Hopkins. I mean, if you want to, if you want to have someone who can play obnoxious, get Alan Ark. Uh, that's almost too easy, though. <laughs> a lot of this is too easy. Oh, one of the Alan Arkin's one of those guys. Yeah. As the wise old man, he's still he's still like a dominating physical presence, though. He's so 
big still. Yeah, you need somebody a little bit more withered, I think. I need, let's see. Who are the other old men these days? Alan Arkin. Uh, I don't know. Alan Alda. That would be obnoxious. That would be really obnoxious. <laughs> That's pretty funny, actually. No, Alan Alda is the kind of person that would appear in this movie and it would be annoying. Captain Von Trapp. He just oh. died, but let's put oh, him in right. there. Unless we want, do we want to keep to the rules that has died. to be someone you could cast? Yeah, that would that role. would have been perfect. You're okay, right. yeah. Stupid Captain Von Trapp. Uh, Why can't I think of his name? Christopher uh, Plummer. Christopher Plummer. Plummer there we go. Yeah, he was fantastic, and he, he would be perfect for that part. Christopher Walken. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, don't do that. Oh, I mean, it'd be interesting. I'm telling you. <laughs> oh, man. This man. You you would want yeah, random, that was just a random name association. I mean, I Christopher Walken is awesome. We could but. do Pacino or De Niro as far as guys who are old, so old they shouldn't be acting anymore. Get Nicholson back for the to play the part. <laughs> Bill Murray, that's pretty good. Bill Murray is the old man. Yeah, that's he might good. steal it. Uh, let's just give it to him. Why not? All right, I sure. mean, he's gonna shake. Him. He's gonna shake Ben Affleck's hand at the end. So give it to somebody who feels like they deserve it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. All right, we've got almost everybody. Almost. Uh, Harvey Bardem, J.K. Simmons, Bill Murray. Did we, oh, we, we, we didn't do juror one, did we? Or did we? We still need a juror one. We still need the huh. meek and unpretentious juror number two. Oh, yeah. So who plays kind of nebbish guys it's, it's, put upon? It's too late for Rick Moranis, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. But who's the Rick Moranis, Moranis of today? Who's like the nerdy? Um, I mean, you've got like your Michael... What's his name from Freaks and Geeks? You got like that generation. You got, what is his name? Like your Jesse Eisenbergs and your kind of Woody Allen, the new Woody Allen type people. But I don't know that any one of those is all that exciting. (laughs) Put upon, there's got to be somebody modern that specializes in put upon meek subservience and is good at it. Who are like the modern betas? Like this should should be so easy. Yeah, Um, Paul Rudd, Tom Holland, the modern betas. But they're too alpha for this, probably. You'd really be stacking the deck if you put one of them in that part. I, but Paul Red's not that strong of an actor. Yeah. I just thought of a couple of guys that's easy Ryan to overlook. Reynolds. Who are awesome, like Gabriel Byrne. Yeah, he'd be good in that part. He, I like he'd, he'd just be good in this movie. Because Gabriel Byrne is awesome. But you forget that he exists because he's a character actor. What about Casey Affleck for the meek guy? I mean, as long as we're stacking... The murderer's row here. Oh, he, he he could do it. He could play pathetic. Yeah, yeah he he does that kind good. of thing He's quite really well. Good at it. Um, okay, that was good. So we still need juror number one. Really, you just need a little bit of low key sarcasm and uh, Mark Ruffalo. Talk about talk about an overpowered juror number one. <laughs> that would be overpowered. He'd be fine. Well, he does he does Marvel's Doctor Banner. Ruffalo is the kind of guy that would suck as Fonda. He would bring so much yeah, annoying self righteousness. Cast. In that spot. And yeah, as would it ruin stupid, it. Uh, what's his face, Chris Evans, and would exactly. do the same thing. I mean, juror yeah. number one could be someone like Don Cheadle. Yes. We should, do we have any people of color in this? We should probably no. cast a person <laughs> we of have, color. We have Robert, probably everybody. And, <laughs> and Robert Pena. Okay, well, do we have any black people? <laughs> we should probably cast a black guy. The Oh, Robert Pena, yeah, that's true. We could just do the obvious thing that they would do and put Sam Jackson in as juror number one. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Sam Jackson as Henry Fonda. <laughs> <Now> that. <laughs> I'm tired. 
<laughs> and our podcast is canceled. Uh, all right, who? So we need. I, I don't. I think I'm bored by John Cheadle, but we need black guy that just brings a little sarcastic energy to juror number one. Could have a very subdued Chris, uh, famous comedian, uh, Rock. Rock. Mm. You could have Chris Rock actually can do that if you want him to. Yeah, I mean he'd be good. Kinda. You. you, you could even use what's his name had a comedy show really crass comedy show but really funny he did the famous black white supremacist oh uh, bit. what's his name he's he's gross but he could actually do this oh what is that guy's name totally lost it Chappelle Dave oh. Chappelle Chappelle would be good either of the K and Peel would be good actually but I, I've not seen the the I've not seen Tenet but. Oh, that guy's great, John David Washington, or whatever his yeah, name yeah, is. Yeah, that guy is great. You could put it. You could plug him into almost any of the younger parts in this, and he'd be good. Yeah, he would nail it. I don't know if he's our juror number one, though. It's almost like who did we say is the is the guy from the slums? Oh, we're still casting that guy from the slums. Yeah, really. We don't have a slums. That could be John David Washington. Let's do it. If you Let's do it. Love yeah. it. Okay. So now we just need juror number one. What if he's an Asian casting? That could be great. But who? Jackie Chan. <laughs> <laughs> Cancel. Uh, Jackie Chan. <laughs> Did you guys no, see that? No, please. I'm just trying to help. <laughs> Drive number one. Oh, that's me. <laughs> oh. I would actually read as such a lame old school Jackie Chan joke if he did that. <laughs> I love it. Uh, okay. So we're trying to get a little color in here, no pun intended, for juror number one. <clears throat> this we, should not be that hard, but it is for some reason. Well, you just, you don't really want to overpower it, so no. it can't be, you kind of need a B-lister, but it has to be a really strong B-lister. Right. I mean, Don Cheadle actually is a good choice. I just don't want to cast Cho. Don John Cho is too much of a star at this point, I think. Who's John Cho again? He played. Uh, he was. He's he's in Star Trek yeah, as uh, Sulu in Star Trek. Oh one. yeah, 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 yeah. He's yeah. that guy, Harold and Kumar. Was he's playing Wolverine. Spike in the upcoming Cowboy Bebop series. For real? Yep. He could be a pretty great Spike. I have Chris to. Pang was Crazy Rich Asians. All right, folks. Ben's going to the bathroom, but we're going to carry on. Me and Jake are going to crack this while Ben's gone. Famous actors. Randall Park. It just occurred to me that serious Will Smith would be oh, the kind of thing man. that Hollywood would like to do. And Will Smith, like Will Smith would, I'm surprised he hasn't thought of remaking this movie. It's, it would be a slam dunk for his, his Oscar aspirational kind of stuff. Yep. Have his team put it together and have him be Fonda. Yeah. Will Smith would actually be, would be a good Fonda. Awesome Fonda. I'm tempted to change our recast. Let's just do it. Okay. Sorry, Ben. Yep. So, that means Ben Affleck's no longer in our movie. I guess we could make him juror number one if... If we wanted to. If we wanted to. All right. We just need a juror number one. Famous character actors. That's what I'm looking up. The 32 greatest character actors working today. Lloyd Goggins. Riz Ahmed. Uh, a Riz Ahmed. Who is that? He played that beat up dude in uh, Rogue One. Oh, yeah. I'm shocked that we haven't cast... What's his face, by the way? Mads Mikkelsen. Oh. I don't know why he's not in our movie. Yeah. He'd be a good juror, number one. Lars Mikkelsen is Thrawn, live action. Oh, there you go. 
He was he was already thrown as a voice actor. That's awesome. I didn't see that. That is correct. I did not realize he was Mads Mikkelsen's brother, to tell you the truth. Until just now. All right. We just need a good character acting. What about the guy that played, I forget his name, but he's really good. He's the black guy in the Daniel Craig James Bond movies. The uh, American CIA up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He plays Felix Leiter, in the, uh, but I forget what his name is. He brings a nice, cool edge to the Jeffrey Wright. We still need a juror number one, Ben. What? How have you guys not solved it yet? Well, well we ended up recasting uh, oh. juror number eight. Who was eight again? Fonda. Uh, oh, who, who, who is he now? Will Smith. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it feels a little too like a closed case. Yeah. That's, oh, well. I feel like I miss Affleck, but I mean, Will Smith will be good, but. I'll, I'll keep Affleck on the, he, he's still on the list. We'll we'll make a final right, decision right, when we look right, at our final right. cast. We just need a juror number one. <laughs> I recommended Jeffrey Wright, famous as Felix oh, Leiter. Yeah, uh, yeah. Jeffrey Wright is kind of awesome. And he has that sort of, he's a little sarcastic, but not, he's kidding you, but he's not going to let you know he's kidding you. He's kind of got that, that energy. So. Yeah, no, Jeffrey Wright would be great. All right. Well, why don't we just cast Jeffrey Wright so we can be done, be done with this awesome exercise. All right, so juror number one is Jeffrey Wright. Juror number two, the meek little guy, is Casey Affleck. Lee J. Cobb, juror number three, is George Clooney. E.G. Marshall, juror, juror number four, the broker, is Michael Fassb. So, over- <laughs> <laughs> so overpowered. <laughs> it's pretty, that, was, that was pretty irritating, but just keep going. It's Excuse okay. me, gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> juror number five is John David Washington. Yeah, I like that. The juror number six, the house painter, is John Favreau. Yes. <laughs> the obnoxious salesman is Robert Pena. Henry Fonda is either Will Smith or Ben Affleck. We have to decide once we look. The juror number nine is totally stacked with Bill Murray. Yeah, I wonder whether Bill Murray's got the right angle on this or not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I wonder whether the most beloved man in America is correct. Uh, J.K. Simmons, <laughs> talk about another highly stacked performance. It plays the racist. The European watchmaker. <laughs> it's awesome. Oh, it's great. Uh, Your constitution it is the best, the foundation of it. Juror number 12 is Brad Pitt. <laughs> I love it. Brad Pitt would be perfect. And if, let's, not, let's, let's not forget I Judge Tom Cruise. <laughs> uh, uh, I, yeah. I think uh, Brad Pitt's the casting I'm most committed to of all of this. <laughs> yeah, no, that'd be fun. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, Michael Fassbender is ridiculous. <laughs> okay, so we need a more subdued intellectual actor. Who? Okay, who who is good at playing intelligence? I mean, Robert Downey Jr. is good at playing intelligence, but that's kind of stacking it. Same problem, kind um, of. Yeah. Although having Robert Downey Jr. play such a humorless character would be kind of interesting and fun, but maybe it's too far. Make, it, make a challenge for him. Uh, yeah, I mean. Mm-hmm. <sighs> okay, who's good at playing intelligence? Who wears glasses in movies? Well, someone we didn't think of who could do almost anything, Colin Farrell. He'd be good. He's he's good. I'm surprised we haven't nominated Denzel for any of these roles, by the way. Uh, it's just too much. Uh, yeah, he's too much. But if you were going to put him in, I think juror number four would be an interesting place for him. Have, uh, have him play the analytical guy no, instead, of, he, instead of the good do-gooder. He would have a lot of fun. He would have a lot of fun. We already cast his son, so there's no reason to cast him, too. That's nepotism. Comedians are good at conveying intelligence. Who's a, who's a comedian that could play against type as juror number four? Mm-hmm. 
I thought of Colin Farrell being funny and cheeky in movies now, so... Uh, Colin Farrell's not bad. But no. there's got to be... Dan Aykroyd. Bill Burr. Bill Burr is the kind of guy that's that would fun. be in this... But but is he playing Jared number four? That's kind of... That'd be, that could be fun. You if you if you force him to be emotionless and I don't know if, if he could he do could it. Do Chappelle, Chappelle's good. I actually like as far as yeah, that's fun. Non interest like because Chappelle actually comes across as a pretty dry person in his private life. Like mm-hmm. he's got a persona, but you can tell there's a kind of a bored, intelligent guy behind the persona. So I like that. Uh, that's fun, and that's really unusual casting. Yeah, that's like <laughs> Chappelle gets the Oscar kind of thing. <laughs> So we've got, uh, so let me go through this one more time and then we'll decide if we're casting Will Smith or Ben Affleck. (laughs) Sad, sad state of affairs to have to choose between those guys. So we've got Jeffrey Wright as juror number one, Casey Affleck as the meek juror number two, George Clooney as angry father juror number three, Chappelle as analytical jury juror number four. John David Washington is juror number five. I forget which one he is, honestly. He's the slum guy. Slum guy. Switchblade. Favreau as the house painter that just always wants to stand up for the little guy. Robert Pena just wants to make it to the baseball game. Although that could be Colin Farrell. Yeah, that's not- You have that guy annoying everyone the whole time. You, you would be good at that, actually. Yeah. But I like Robert Pena. Yeah, let's, let, let's keep him. Uh, Henry Fonda is either Will Smith or Ben Affleck. And McArdle is Bill Murray which I stand by. <laughs> Ed Bagley is the racist. He is J.K. Simmons. That feels a little easy to me, but J.K. Simmons is always pretty great on the other hand. Yeah. Uh, Javier Bartem. Is <laughs> That's Washburn. another ridiculous piece of casting. That's my fault, but uh, oh, it's, it's hilarious. Well, as long as we're doing that, let's keep Brad Pitt as juror number 12 <laughs> and Tom Cruise as our judge. <laughs> so with that, Murderer's Row, do we put Smith or Affleck in the Fonda position. We didn't get Brolin anywhere. No. I mean, there's all kinds of people we could put in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm leaning Affleck just because he's... He'll, he'll bring so much grounding. He's more He's more real. Like, Will Smith's like, I'm acting. Look at me. I, I've learned how to play a world-weary guy. Whereas Affleck just hates life. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think that's where I'm landing. I like it. It, pre- it presents more opportunity for attention to if you have a white guy be the have to be the, the dude that gives somebody like Chappelle, you know somebody to really play off of and have some aggression toward and that's fun yeah yeah and you can you can just do a lot with that whereas if you have will smith and you have as uh ethnically diverse a cast as we have then it feels really yeah stacked mm-hmm. and yeah this is a fun cast Let's green light it. That sounds great. Yeah. Man. Uh, yeah, speak- I, I think, a- Af- that, the, yeah, that Affleck Chappelle thing, that would be worth the price of admission. Right? Yeah. And seeing Javier Bardem is iconic role as European It's obviously worth the price of admission. <laughs> the Spanish watchmaker. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> and he would it, kill it, too. Yeah, no. And then no we get Ryan Johnson to direct it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ben wants to give it to... Here's here's no, the no, reason no. why you don't here's the reason why you don't give it to Ryan Johnson. Yeah. Ryan Johnson hates conservatives. Yeah. And he would stack the deck one way or another. I mean, you think about I, I love Knives Out, but what a smarmy, yeah. smarmy yep. movie that hates anyone who is makes any kind of money. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly. I don't want I'm 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 firing Ryan Johnson. I don't want him to do this movie, even though he's very talented. 
Yeah, that's too bad. I don't know who who else you you choose. You could get Spielberg. He would do a nice workmanlike job, like the old school workman kind of workman that no one is capable of anymore. Hmm. I don't know. It's the kind of movie that they'd give to Ridley Scott, and he'd just oh. make it generic. Yeah, uh, Scott, man, everything would be all contrasty and shadowy. Zack Snyder's Twelve Angry Men. <laughs> <laughs> Dawn of Justice. Dawn of Justice. <laughs> Denis Villeneuve. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Boring. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Who's going to direct it? That reminds me, there's no Jake Gyllenhaal in this movie. That's too bad. I mean, he can't play any of the parts. Yeah, make it do whatever. We just send the script to Gyllenhaal and say, who do you want to replace? What would be a challenge for you? Yeah. I mean, he'd be great for anything from Fonda to angry dad like Dylan Hall can just do it all yeah that's true and you'd want to see him he could be a great European watchmaker okay I don't know who's directing this movie pretty hard you can see if Peter Weir once is, 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 is it's like he's given up on making movies yep. so I don't know Brett Ratner <laughs> the worst just the worst I mean if you wanted just some people to bring some real old school craftsmanship get the Coen brothers they would they would do as good a job as LeMay, Lamette did, but mm-hmm. uh, I don't know why they'd want to do this. No, it's not mean enough. No. Or funny enough. I mean, I'd be interested in seeing their, their rewrite of it, but that's not the movie we're pitching today. Give it to like Spike Jones. Yeah, he'd do a good job. Yeah. Tarantino. Uh, he'd bring something to it. He would. Christopher Nolan. C <laughs> twelve angry men in IMAX. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only way. You feel like you can crawl inside their pores. David Fincher would knock it out of the park. Hey, that's a good. That's he, not a bad idea at all. Actually, he, David Fincher would actually serve the material, wouldn't he? Yeah, no, Fincher would be great. He's he, he would make the best movie of anyone. We've. I mean, Fincher's just he's a master. So yeah. uh, <clears throat> say what you will about his choice of material, he is a great filmmaker. I think that's yeah. I think that's it. Yeah, he'd be good. Honestly, though, if they made this, it would be Ron Howard that would direct it. That's what and then I it would be sad. Kept thinking. Yeah. We'd all be sad. Or at best, it'd be one of those weird guys. It'd be, well, not they're not weird, but it'd be like a late career Clint Eastwood directed movie, which would be competent. Yeah, it, he could do it. Mm, be okay. Steven Soderbergh would decide to randomly do it. There's, uh, there's all uh, kinds of uh. those guys. Or you know what? If they actually made this movie, you know who would direct it? If it was our cast, it would be one of the... It would be like Ben Affleck was directing and acting. Or Favreau. Or Favreau. Ben Affleck would do fine. Ben Affleck is actually pretty competent. Yeah, he's good. Uh, I don't know that I've ever actually liked one of his movies, but they're all... You didn't like Gone Baby Gone? Oh, I never saw Gone Baby Gone. I was thinking of... I didn't see The Town, which... Yeah, I did not love The Town. I just thought it was just kind of boring. I don't know. Not a, it, and I didn't like the other one about uh, Hollywood saving yes, hostages. Those the Argo, yeah. I one. know everyone loves that, but I just didn't like it. Nah, I didn't love it either. I mean, I didn't hate it, but I also no. Didn't love Go- it. Gone Baby Gone was, to my memory, really good. Well, guys, is there anything else that you'd like to say about City Lamets' Twelve Angry Men? Warhorn Media's Twelve Angry Men coming to a theater? Never. I'm looking through my notes. So we talked about whether the detective story held up. We talked about facts. We talked about stylized realism. We talked about creating a world in your head. We talked about lens choices and camera and all that stuff. We talked about typecasting. 
Mm-hmm. Did we talk enough about the actual moral of this movie? Do, I guess we like I the moral we, of this movie. We don't. We don't think it's like a just a liberal propaganda piece or no. I think it could be very easily. I think if they made it today, it probably would be. But and then it was a liberal propaganda piece of its time. Henry Fonda was a liberal Democrat that had a point to make about how our system chews up young lives. Mm-hmm. But the movie works as a defense of innocent until proven guilty, which is one of the great things about our constitution. And uh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Insofar as it's a rebuke of shoot first conservatives, insofar as there are conservatives who are actually shoot first conservatives, I think they probably deserve it. It's not good to shoot first and always ask questions later. <sighs> it feels like the kind of movie we should be able to get more discussion out of on thematically, but <laughs> it's a pretty, pretty simple point. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. pretty cut and dried and they don't. Would the movie have been better if they introduced more complications? I guess that's the question is. No. No, it's just it's better as a little fable. Yeah. Good guys, bad guys. Well, yeah. What, what about the racist scene? Do you guys, I guess we should talk about that real quick. Do you guys think that that scene works or does that just feel like Hollywood grandstanding stuff? Like, yeah, we wrote the scene so the, uh, the audience can just feel pat themselves on the back. They're not racists. Let's have the jerk give a racist rant and then all of our care, you know, even Lee J. Cobb's going to stand up and turn his back on this awful. It's, it's kind of like La Marseille in Casablanca. It's just this we're standing against this thing and we as an audience that are watching and are standing against this thing and aren't we great and isn't this great and isn't everything great it's complicated because yeah it's grandstanding but also it's a real thing that needed to be stood against so i don't know like how do you do that well yeah i don't want to i mean what this movie was written when or or came out when 57 yeah 57 so like think of the civil rights movement and this movie is so far back that they don't even cast a black guy because right. they're not, we're not ready to have that discussion yet. Right. So we're going to cast an ethnic New York type. Right. I mean, as much as we say it works as a fable, I don't think that they chose to do that because it'll make a better fable. I, I think they chose to do it because they knew they could get in trouble with their audiences if they got too mm-hmm. specific. So mm-hmm. we have to make it a fable. Right. I mean, this is. There's still segregation laws at this when this move. There are there are still uh, what's the word miscegenation laws mm-hmm. is that um, on the books when this movie comes out. Yep. Like, yeah. So yeah, when you when you put it in its time, it's 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 fine. I think I still prefer. You have to criticize. Siskel and Ebert always said, criticize the movie they made, not the movie they didn't make. I still prefer a movie with less clearly drawn lines. If I'm if I'm going to talk about the greatest message movies of all time, I'd put Casablanca up the top over this because yep. Rick is a complicated hero who wants to be bad but does the right thing, which mm-hmm. is always going to be a hundred times more interesting than Henry Fonda just being mm-hmm. good. And the La Marseille scene is therefore much more powerful because it's a bunch of weak people instead of it's the message moment where we all do the right thing. Any more thoughts about 12 Angry Men? No. How many men out of 12 do you give to this movie, Ben? 10, I think. 10 Angry Men out of... Yeah. And why are you docking it? Two Angry Men, I I might ask? I don't don't know. I mean, maybe I give it 11. And why are you docking it? One Angry Man? Uh, Right now, I'm Is this not a perfect movie? I'm that vacillating marketing guy right now. Let's see. It's, it's, It's great. It's great. It is... I can't help but agree with what you said, that it's... It's more of an exercise in craftsmanship and storytelling than 
it's not there's not a lot of meat on the bones to come back to. It's just it's enjoyable to does watch. It, does it have to have? Does every? I mean, in order to be a twelve out of twelve, does every movie have to be something that has a lot of meat on its bones to come back to? I don't know. I feel like the answer is yeah, maybe. In terms of this podcast, the answer is you you define your own system. So yeah, but uh, I'm asking for Ben's sake. Yeah, I'm asking about Ben's system. Yeah, no, it's a good question, Jake. I don't know the answer. I don't. I haven't worked out my system entirely yet. I don't know. I don't know why I instinctively dock it a little. I tend. I think I probably agree with you. I mean, if if we're just talking about craftsmanship, it's twelve angry men out of twelve. Twelve angry yeah. men. Yes, for sure. If we're talking about how much I care at the end of the day. Yes. If we're talking about rewatch. I if we're talking about like, uh, did I enjoy this? Is it something I'd want to go back to? It's like I admire it more than I enjoy it. It's. But I did, I enjoyed it. I was moved. I teared up a little bit at Lee J Cobb at the end. I mean. Lee J. Cobb gets a 12 out of 12 for sure. He, I think he's fantastic and you really feel his. Yeah. But it, but it's not like it's a wonderful life. Like it leaves you things like, yeah, I remembered that I'm a bitter person too. This is less that and more like mm-hmm. this is how people are. This is how we all can be. It's more general, more abstract, more fable-ish. I, I like that, but it's not, it, it doesn't feel as particular or as pointed at me as like it's a wonderful life or something like that but then you come back to jake's question is it right to say this cheeseburger isn't the perfect steak well it might be the perfect cheeseburger yeah here's another question did it actually make an impression on you that from the first time you saw it that has lasted so it's a wonderful life says oh yeah i'm a you come back to it and you say oh yeah i'm bitter and angry like jimmy stewart Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. did did this movie from the first time you watched it inform anything just i would say that for a lot of people who've seen this movie this movie's in the back of their mind every time a trial every time sure. a, the, the phrase reasonable doubt comes up and it does mm. good work as a preservative culturally mm. I, i'm not i'm not i don't know i'm trying to i guess i'm just trying to make our discussion interesting well no, this this that's is helpful all, this all, is yeah. helpful to me to think through it i think that'll that'll actually be true for me too from now on when Have I was you not ki- seen it? I saw it when I was a kid. Yeah, we and never, I, we I remember, never actually talked about our baggage. I, no. Yeah. But I just know I saw it probably in my early teen years or something. Mm-hmm. Liked it. But yeah. I, didn't, I didn't hold on to I would say reasonable that doubt. The term for a whole generation of people and then for subsequent generations have discovered this movie. This movie is the placeholder in their mind of reasonable doubt and they know what it means because of this movie or they've held on to it. It got, it was sticky mm-hmm. and it, and it taught them something about our judicial system that might have sailed over their heads or never been processed before. They may have never been made to process. And that thing seems more, more vital than ever now. More important today than it's ever been is what it feels like. It's a really good point. Yeah. I don't disagree that it's going to be helpful to me moving forward. I saw it young and I think what I really latched onto because I didn't understand or care about the judicial process, but I did care, care and understand about families. So the thing that's always stuck with me is Lee J. Cobb's breakdown at the end. And I still think that's the most powerful mm-hmm. scene in the movie. But this time around, I was much more keyed into the judicial stuff and it, I can't think of a movie that's more helpful in that regard. You think about the great classic courtroom movies and on the AFI's list, the number one one is To Kill a Mockingbird, which I don't like. Mm-hmm. We talked about that before. They make it into a courtroom thriller. I don't think that's what the book's about. I don't think that Gregory Peck is right for Atticus. Like I just, 
I know everybody loves that movie, but I, I don't know. We talked about it on the bookening. You can listen to my thoughts. It's a great movie in and of itself, but it's not the book. It's not the book. And also, I don't think it's that compelling as just a courtroom. Once you strip away what makes that book special and you just have a courtroom drama, I'm not sure how great of a courtroom drama it actually is. This is a yeah. much better one. Yeah. This is a great courtroom drama. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a great put yourself in the shoes of what would you do? This is a great little you have to think about it kind of. This is a great message movie actually, and it's yeah. got it's got a great message. I think you I think I was prepared to dock at a couple angry men, but you've actually talked it into me whether you meant to message or not. movies are really hard to make mm-hmm. yeah and not have them feel cheap and stupid. yeah and so you have a a message movie that you don't ever need to come back to mm-hmm. but it's done its work in you and it's done it with excellent craftsmanship it's done absolutely everything it set out to do it's ticked every single box and in that sense it's almost a perfect movie it may not be what you look what you come to the movies for not mm-hmm. many people come to the movies for a message movie, mm-hmm. but I don't know. Yeah. No, okay. I think that actually that's convincing. I'm going to give it 12. And, well, and when you compare it to other message movies, whether it's a classic like To Kill a Mockingbird or a quote-unquote modern classic like Good Night and Good Luck or the kinds of movies that liberal do-gooders make now, the kind of movie that Tim Robbins would make or something like that. Yeah, Tim Robbins is very fun. You compare it to Crash, Oscar winner, <laughs> Crash. <laughs> I never had to see that movie. Uh, when you compare it to George Clooney's oeuvre of things like Syriana and uh, just these things where they're mm-hmm. like, the American interventionism's bad. When you compare it to, what's that movie that's The Constant Gardener. Man, this is so much better than that. It's a message movie, it's enjoyable, and it's an actual good message. It's a, And it's character-driven. And it's character-driven. And it is pretty darn entertaining, even if it's, it's not... It's really entertaining. It's, not, it's, not, it's a Wonderful Life or Raiders of the Lost Ark, no, but... No, no. Man, it's... But it's, it's really entertaining. It's good. No, I don't deny it. Yep. And I think it, if it became any of the other things that we might want, it would have to sacrifice doing what it actually does well it it only functions as a fable if it doesn't complicate things if it doesn't bring in a girl that would make things more warm Mm -hmm. and sweet and there's all kinds of things that i go to for a movie or go to a movie for that this movie doesn't have but it would be to the detriment of this movie if it had them Mm -hmm. so and i feel much less annoyed by its politics than i do even by a frank capra you know Mm -hmm. in terms of messaging I'd rather watch this than Mr. Smith. In terms of entertainment, I'd rather watch Mr. Smith. But this movie manages not to be smarmy, which mm-hmm. is a pretty hard trick for these kinds of things. Yeah. So, yeah. 12 out of 12 angry men. What if Jake now gives it like three? <laughs> <laughs> I hate this movie. <laughs> you guys. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> uh, Losers. How many angry men out of 12, Jake, uh, for you? 12. Yeah. I mean, no. when you just put it in its proper genre, when you when you start to stack it up against things like To Kill a Mockingbird... <laughs> I actually really think that helps it because I can't think of a better one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, John Grisham thrillers are fun. But they are dumb. The Verdict with Paul Newman is fun. What are the other? Uh, Anatomy of a Murder with Jimmy Stewart is good. There's lots of good courtroom drama movies, but. Best in class. Yeah. This is just the best in class. Uh, unless that's the name of a courtroom drama movie. That no, I, that's okay. not. I was <laughs> making a statement. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> Is there some courtroom <laughs> drama called Best in Class? <laughs> you are declared Best in Class. Okay. Well, Caitlin, 
I hope that that was discussion that you found useful. I know you wanted us to figure out who we would cast it and to spend a, a large portion of the podcast talking about that. Honestly, this is just a very simple movie. Yeah, I hope you appreciated my Henry Fonda-esque argument. <laughs> yeah, that was in, great. We were all prepared. <laughs> we weren't going to execute it, but we were going to like chop off its hand or something. And Yeah. Yeah. I didn't think Jake portrayed much in her struggle yeah. or weariness. Yeah, it was just kind of just like... like I'm this movie's hero now. Yeah. <laughs> Supposing this movie's good. <laughs> Supposing it's not. <laughs> the message movies, they come after you. They destroy you. <laughs> you know, I'm just a working man. My, my boss does all the supposing, but... <laughs> <laughs> Suppose you convince us uh. of the wrong thing, Jake. <laughs> You've convinced me. It's a perfect movie. All the different types that <laughs> <laughs> that we represent. That we represent. <laughs> okay, twelve angry men. Well, let's see who our patron choice award of awesomeness goes to today. And if if you haven't seen it, I mean, really, the only criticism we're making is rewatchability because we're all happy we've seen it. But if you haven't seen it, you you do yourself a favor and watch this movie. It's, I, yeah, I I don't y- think you I'd won't need to see it, it a second time. But I don't think I'd mind. No, you know, you wouldn't mind. Like it'd be the kind of thing where it'd be like. Somebody hasn't seen it, and mm-hmm. like that's oh, right. That's a movie you should see. We should watch that sometime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Be happy to watch it with somebody, right. or Whatever. Yeah. Is it as good as my cousin Vinny? Mm. Still trying to think of courtroom dramas. <laughs> what exactly is a grit? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't have Herman Munster as the judge, which is too bad. <laughs> doesn't have. Aunt May showing her car knowledge. Mm-hmm. That's right. She's in that thing. Yeah, that's one we're going to watch sometime soon. My wife keeps reminding me. We haven't watched Cousin Vinny. It's been a long time since I've seen it. So I was like, yep. It's been years since I've seen it. I guess I would assume it doesn't hold up, but maybe it does. I don't know. I think I would assume it's all right. I mean. I guess I'll find out. I always enjoy Joe Pesci. <laughs> What if Joe Pesci Famous played? for Home Alone. What part would we put Joe Pesci in this? Oh, man. He would actually be a fun old man. Actually, that's that's great casting for the old man. Yeah. Because he could be really obnoxious in a way that straddled the line between sympathetic and not. Yeah, he's old and bedraggled enough at this point in real life that he would have some natural old man sympathy. But also, he's just a little annoying pipsqueak. That Danny old- Glover is the old man. <laughs> <laughs> well... Let's. This was a patron suggestion from our good friend and patron, Caitlin. So I'm jumping ahead in the patron list a little bit, but I want to give the patron choice award of awesomeness to her today. Thank you, Caitlin, for your patronage. And uh, what makes Caitlin so great, guys? I feel like if we were in a courtroom or she was a juror, she would stand up for the little guy. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Very true. Yeah, I'd just be trying to make it to the ball game, but but not Caitlin. Nope, she'd stand there looking out the window, thinking pensively to herself. <laughs> Eleven angry men and one angry woman. <laughs> <laughs> I never did care for the sequel. Well, that's, the, that's, the, that's the other thing about our casting is that our jury, our jury would have to have women. It's interesting that the '97 version didn't do that. I guess they just didn't want to change the title. Which twelve angry people doesn't quite have the same uh, ring ring to it, you know. You know, what I think you do. I think you just call it twelve angry men and then have some women and 
just don't even mention it. Nobody would care. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We would make fun of it on our podcast, but I don't know. Make the judge angry. Make the bailiff angry. <laughs> you can bring the, the, the angry men count up somehow. Have an angry cab driver at the beginning. <laughs> uh, oh, man. What a great title, by the way. Mm-hmm. Are they all angry, though? That's a good question. They all Does it get angry it's at some point. Title. They all get angry at some point. Does glasses, does broker, should have been called 11 angry men and one analytical broker. Actually, yeah, I don't think he does get angry. He ten, does. 10 angry man, men, one analytical broker and one whimsical, obnoxious old man. Does Fonda, yeah, Fonda gets angry. He goes the after The old man Lee gets Jacob. angry. Yeah. He gets ticked off at the racist and he mm-hmm. cusses and. Yeah, that's right. But the broker, the broker just gets a little shocked that he was about to make the wrong decision, mm-hmm. which is a fun character beat yeah i love that broker he's he's the most one of the more entertaining parts to watch in this movie just because i didn't remember him and he brings he brings some real interest to the movie (laughs) okay well go to patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movies to support this podcast help these three genial men do movie podcasts help us be angry at things like black widow we'll be three angry men about that we'll be three happy men when we're talking about 12 angry men but the only way we can do that is if you give us some money at patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movies you can hear two nerdy men talk about (laughs) clone wars ad nauseum we're getting into some really fun arcs right now oh yeah man talked about mortis last week uh super i don't think those episodes have come out yet but mortis is coming we're talking about the introduction of darth maul spoilers for something from 10 years ago all kinds of stuff yeah so yeah we're I, I hope soon we'll find a little time to read the frank darabont indiana jones script you can also find our rendition of duel of the fates there it's just a lot of fun and if you get us to 250 or something like that then we will be able to do the superheroes journey part two where we will talk about the christopher reeves i think first two superman movies because i oh, just don't yeah. i don't no, want to no, talk no, about no 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 just the first two you have to pay us a Three lot more. Three and four are pure garbage. If you want us to talk about the Richard Pryor one or the stupid, cheap, oh, son, bad guy one. That is incredibly boring. One of the most boring movies. Yep. And yet, the one that I saw the most as a kid somehow. Oh, wow. So, I think that, that between that and Superman 2, somehow, those just got rented a lot or something. Oh. Actually, fun fact, I've, I've seen Superman 1, but I don't know that I've ever <laughs> just sat down and watched Superman 1 from beginning to end. Like, huh. I've, I've seen it on TV. I've walked in when my family's watching it. I, like, I know it pretty well, but... I don't know that I've just like ever watched it. I think I've watched it once as a kid and that's all. Superman 2 on the other hand. All the time. Yeah, I yeah. Saw, saw that a bunch. And I'm, I'm guessing it's not half as good as Superman 1. No from, way. From my impression well, of it. Well, it depends on the cut. Up. Does it really depend that much on the cut? I think the Donner cut is pretty great. Huh. I've that, never seen the Donner cut. That doesn't shock me. The Lester cut's pretty cheesy and yeah, you know, pretty mean. Yeah, he goes back to beat up that redneck <laughs> after he gets his Superman powers back. It's like, uh, this is not my Superman. So that doesn't happen in the Donner Cut? I don't remember. I just remember seeing the Donner Cut and thinking, well, that's not as stupid as I remembered. Well, we will do both cuts. I think okay. I think to give people their money's worth, we <laughs> yeah. have to do both and it'll be fun to talk about. And we will also, which would be two movies that might not even be hmm. approach goodness, but they'll be really fun to talk about, which is Batman. Well, and they're touched... Uh, the touchstones that set yeah. the stage for... Well, at least one of them is the touchstone for modern movie making. I mean, Batman 89 mm-hmm. is just like... Yeah. 
that's when they really figured it out. Yeah, okay, Jaws, Star Wars, but when they when they figured out, oh, we can just market the crap out of this stuff and mm-hmm. sell a million T-shirts. Everybody had Batman stuff, uh, and it doesn't even really matter if the movie is what people want or if it's yeah. And, and it wasn't a good movie at all, right? And but kids, we can sell the iconography. It, it, the movie just doesn't even matter. <laughs> that's that that is that's going to be a lot of fun to talk about, and the journey of. Batman to the screen and the fact that I think a Indiana University guy was uh, a screenwriter or I don't know somebody associated with Indiana University is associated with Batman 89 so many things to talk about and then Batman Returns one of the most bizarre off-putting Dark, <laughs> gross it's but, gross but it's a kind of awesome in its terrible way I mean it's a some kind of masterpiece a masterpiece of something yeah maybe a masterpiece of crap but yeah, it's maybe so. Boy, in terms of uh, bizarro, emo, angry <laughs> movies where Michelle kids. Pfeiffer kisses uh, <laughs> Christopher Walken to death by elect- while electrocuting themselves, oh, you-, you can't do much better than... <laughs> you can't do much better. A movie that was never for kids and that kids sh- should never have seen, but it was probably too late for a lot of them by the and time y- their parents realized. And yet, yep. the Happy Meal toys that I remember are from that movie. The little duck and the Batmobile. Oh, I'm sure the those Batmobile were the best. And, yeah, that movie, that sold, movie had the sold visual, some cool toys. That movie had the visuals that modern comic book movies only wish for. Yep. Agreed. Well, so we're talking about it already, oh, folks. No, Come on. Stop it. Give us money so we can talk about this stuff. We want to talk about... That'd be so much fun to talk about. Yeah, and I want an excuse. I've been holding off because for years now, Jake's like, Superman, yay. And I'm like, yeah, I should go back and refresh myself. But now I need to wait because it'd be more fun for the audience of this podcast if I wait. So get us there. Get us there. Supposing you got us there. We do it. And until next time. Not guilty. I'm just realizing I should have done guilty or not guilty instead of 12 out of 12 angry men would have made way more sense. <laughs>